subscribed to UFO magazines and journals and, you know, got video and any, anyway, I, I studied a lot of it. And ever since I had my website, I've had thousands of people contacting me by email or chats or, you know, even sometimes phone and video sharing with me their stories, their personal anecdotes and what they've concluded about their experiences. So point being, I've come across a ton of data points that point to this, the idea that the alien presence is relatively ubiquitous. Um, and I say that because they have the ability to do that. They have what's called phasing technology. So it's like a malfunctioning high voltage transformer. It just sends out sparks and it starts killing people. And I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant here in the Old Testament. That's one example. We're going to release it to our corporate channels and make you know billions of dollars off of it to fund our, our projects. Um, so it's, it's like you know um, alien alien technological money laundering in a way, if you think about it. Right? <laughs> they're taking alien technology and they're getting rich off of it. So for all you know, you know your chronal mass ejections from the sun, but also possibly the fluctuations in etheric energy on the planet. You know, not only the amount of etheric energy, but the qualities of it. Chapel in uh, where is it Scotland I think, but um, mm -hmm. yes yeah yeah if, if you look, if you look at Roslyn Chapel right on, on 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 the ribbed part of the vaulted ceilings there they got these cubes that are all over the place these cubes have different designs designs on them and people figured out that the design on the cube itself on the face of the cube is what you get with cymatics you know when you vibrate a plate with sand on it you kind of vibrate at a certain pitch and it creates like a standing wave pattern of sand and those particular patterns they found all over these cubes. So what does that mean? It means that whoever built Wildland Chapel was aware of sound, aware of cymatics, standing waves, uh, and stone. And stone, and those four things, is what you find in the cathedral structures. You know, in terms of the, the principles behind their construction. And also, actually, I would add, in, in the Great Pyramid as well, because the Great Pyramid, uh, not to get into a whole side tangent on that, it used water, sound, plasma, um, probably the vibrations of the stone, which. Stones being piezoelectric means that when you when you squeeze them physically, it creates like a voltage like on the surface of the stone. And so when you take the entire pyramid structure and you resonate it, vibrate it, and the stones are vibrating, they're emitting electric, longitudinal electric waves, which are scalar waves. So the Great Pyramid was a scalar wave generator or radiator of some kind, in addition to all of its other functions. And I think some of that, that knowledge of that, that legacy wound up in the Middle Ages as the cathedrals. So the cathedrals were a continuation of the same Masonic uh, secret knowledge that you know went into the Great Pyramids thousands and thousands of years earlier. Hey, Fire Tribe. We've made it to the crest the pinnacle of paranormal and energetics month and to end it 
We have arranged this conversation with Tom Montauk. It's great. It's fantastic. He is an OG, a much credited OG in the scene of this ufology world, Uf- ufological world. <laughs> and he's a true pleasure to talk to. He's a musician. He's an author. He's a researcher. Uh, he's an experiencer. And Tom Montauk has had a fantastic um, website online active for well over a decade, possibly even two decades. I can't remember the exact number, but it's a bunch of really great, awesome compiled um, research information that he's he's put together there and some books that you can actually access online on his website um, directly. You can, you can download some PDFs, I know. And then he has his brand new book, Gnosis, which... Um, covers a lot more of the um, alchemical history and things, which is great because that's you know generally what we really enjoy talking about here. So he's a great amalgamated guest. Uh, with, uh, he's a great guest with amalgamated topics of uh, that kind of sum sum up everything we've been talking about the past couple months, getting into the paranormal and the earthen energetics. So. Definitely excited to um, to share this one with you guys, and like always, you know, join us on Telegram. It's a great platform, uh, social media that uh, and it's fun. I love it. Uh, posting random threads of rabbit holes I'm going down, and we have an amazing community out there. You guys keeping it alive, keeping the rabbit holes. You know, sometimes what happens when you're going deep down these caves? I'll tell you what happens. This is what happens. You're deep down a cave. You have a little light with you, and you can see which way you're heading. But you can't see much else besides of the light that you have. And you know that there's many ways. uh, You can go forward. You can go back. You're in this hole, this rabbit hole, this cave, this portal cave that you found on information and curiosity. And sometimes there's rock walls that just cave in on you and you seem stuck that's why you never go in a rabbit hole alone and that's what we're here for on telegram you know uh we're just we just hear everybody out man it's the fire tribe at its tried and true is there on the telegram the telegram family is strong it's awesome and um yeah it's even broader perspectives it's great so Go sign that up. Go sign that up. You like how I just put words in front of other words that are almost sentences, and then they, they, they kind of tantalizingly fractalize on themselves. Anywho, I'm going to stop. I'm going to start blabbering here soon, and I'm going to get into some RFTA news. But I do want to let you guys know about the sweet Patreon that we have for three bucks a month. Go on over and subscribe, support Dan and I to get our dreams fulfilled and to help with some of these hosting sites that uh, do, you know, that, that cost money for these these types of platforms and, and all the things. So if you want to support the boys, Patreon, go check it out. Got some sweet stuff on there. Hours of content for you. And also another warning, my friends. A warning. Okay. A warning. Are you ready for this warning? Uh, we're taking the month of December off. So 
you know, each month this year, even by month, we've had a theme. Okay. And um, I'll do an episode here in, in a few days or a week or something, just kind of like an update that's just maybe a recap of, uh, you know, all the themes that we did this year. So the month of December, we're actually just going to be posting episodes that are like, quote unquote themeless or, you know, within that, that Venn diagram of, uh, of being like uh, unthemey and just being awesome. And probably some Patreon, a couple Patreon episodes that will that were really, 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 really too, too good to not share. Um, that's what the month of December is going to mainly be. So this is our final capstone of the themed months for the year, and, and I guess it's almost like a capstone episode for the year itself. And we'll be starting off next year with some great themes, and we're going to be diving deep next year you guys we are going to be diving deep into a lot of celtic um the celtic history and we're going to go deep on the twatha de denan we're going to go deep on the north west europe mythos for the first half of the year so get ready and strap in for that we're doing all things from all over the world, snake symbolism, serpent symbolism, like real deep, real, real deep research on uh, on all of that. Uh, and so, so much more grimoires and other mystic cultures. Like it's just, it's going to be so, so my, my mind's already blown that I'm having a hard time articulate. So let us, let us know further without further ado, get into some RF. TA News. And for this, I'm going to read you guys a full synopsis of Tom Montauk's book. And he does such a good job at, at explaining things. That's why I, I really, really, really love his writing and his, and his uh, website. He's got awesome articles on there. Um, and he gives a full description of his book. And I'm going to read the whole thing because it's awesome. So here we go. This is a summary of the book Gnosis, Alchemy Grail Arc in the Demiurge. The book goes much deeper with 365 pages, numerous excerpts, 60 illustrations, and 12-page index. But the summary gives you the critical takeaways. Number one, the corruption of the Demiurge. Just as the composition of the human being can be divided into body, soul, mind, and spirit, so can creation be divided into universe, demiurge, logos, and nos. The physical body of creation is simply the universe. The soul of creation is known as the demiurge, an artificial metaphysical intelligence responsible for shaping, projecting, and reshaping space, time, matter, and energy. It blindly carries out the commands it's given transducing higher metaphysical archetypes and energies into physical manifestations. The Demiurge is like a construction company that builds according to the blueprints it has been given. The Logos is the architect, the mind of the creator, the high universal intellect that plans, balances, supervises, and adjusts creation according to the will of Nos which is the spirit of creation, the infinite creator itself. 
In an ideal situation, the Logos draws the blueprints of existence according to divine will and passes it onto the Demiurge who molds reality accordingly. Thus, physical reality would ideally be a reflection of the divine will. Unfortunately, the Demiurge has a mind of its own. It is a programmable artificial intelligence composed of etheric and astral energy fields that underlie and permeate our existence. If the programs it executes come from the divine realms, everything is fine and a golden age exists. But if the program is corrupted by lower material-based influences, then a portion of the demiurge begins existing solely to serve and perpetuate physical interest. Thus, the law of the jungle, self-preservation, predation, competition, and manipulation take the place of spiritual principles and interest. Hence, the universe can and has become a spiritual prison or energy farm run by a tyrannical parasite known as the corrupt demiurge. The corrupt demiurge is the lower ego of creation, a selfish parasite or rogue extension of the demiurge that fashions our reality per its predatory ambitions. It's like a computer virus that has an infected reality and turned it into a zombie computer. The corrupt demiurge is the computer mainframe of the matrix control system. In our current state, humans are not pure divine beings, but corrupted or fallen. We are dual beings with the core of divine spirit that is all too often asleep at the mercy of the lower component, which is animalistic and selfish. The latter is what distinguishes us from our former unfallen state and from divine beings whose spirits are not latent but fully active. Just as creation has become corrupted through the demiurge developing a parasitic ego extension, so has the human soul matrix fallen through the acquisition of ego or lower intellect. The ego is an artificial extension of the human soul that arises solely from genetic and social factors. These factors program into the soul a kind of subroutine that exists solely to perpetuate itself according to biological and social standards. Thus, the lower ego is an artifact of our exposure to the matrix control system, one that microcosmically mirrors the corrupt demiurge that plays a similar role in the macrocosmic scale. But just as the soul can develop a lower ego through prolonged contact with material realms, so can it develop a higher ego via extensive contact with divine realms. The influence of spirit upon the soul can create a higher ego, which is an inner divine personality, the awakened or unfallen or true self. Genuine saints and esoteric masters have a well-developed higher ego and have overcome their lower egos. To displace the lower ego with the higher ego is the goal of all esoteric training systems. Likewise, the influence of nos or logos upon the demiurge produces a universal higher ego, which here will be termed the Christ. It is an immortal, universal, divine intelligence that has incarnated into various avatars of history, including the historical person on whom the biblical character of Jesus Christ was based. 
Christ was projected by the Creator in response to the arising of the corrupt Demiurge and its intrusion into our affairs. The two are antithetical to each other. The function of Christ is to remedy the imbalance caused by the corrupt Demiurge and to redeem the souls who have fallen into this darkened realm. The Demiurge, which projects and fashions reality like a computer generating a virtual game world, is therefore being tugged from opposite ends by divine and infernal forces. And our existence is consequently an admixture of the two forces, just as we are, internally. The consequence of the back-and-forth struggle between these forces is what produced history as we know it, and is the reason our timeline is moving in prophesized direction. Two, the Philosopher's Stone. The Demiurge is the soul of the universe, and like our souls, it's made of etheric and astral energy fields. Etheric energy is the subtle energy that influences the, pro, the probability of quantum phenomena. The quantum level underpins our everyday world, thus changes at the quantum level can cascade upwards and scale to everyday visible phenomena. Astral energies contain archetypal essences that guide the direction in which etheric energy alters phys physicality. Hence the demiurge fashioning the world follows from these properties. Thus, to manipulate etheric and astral energies is to manipulate the demiurge and, if done with sufficient complexity and intensity, physical reality itself. Through certain means, one can locally reprogram the demiurge and therefore change matter, energy, space, and time. That is the basis of what is hereby called the demiurgic technology. The technology alters the etheric and astral matrix code beneath reality to reshape reality. Within limits, higher applications of demiurgic technology include manifesting solid objects and foodstuffs out of thin air, altering physical geography, and rewriting a timeline. An example of lower demiurgic technology is the Philosopher's Stone, which is a physical material that has been imbued with an immense concentration of etheric energy and then tinged with astral essence of gold or silver. It is capable of transmuting metals at the atomic level, among other feats. The stone is produced through a process known as the work, which has a metaphysical analogs, but is most definitely a physical procedure performed in a lab. There are numerous variations on the process, the basic method being delineated in the works of Ciliani, Falconelli, Archifius, Pontinus, Sendivogius, and Adam Frederick Balmy. In short, the process begins by decomposing a certain sulfide ore, a veritable firestone, under the action of a gentle warmth and moisture imbued with an etheric energy, such as from the morning dew collected under the influence of lunar radiation. 
From this is extracted a saline fluid containing the alchemical sulfur and mercury. This fluid is rich in etheric energy and must be putrefied under warmth and biological action, which kickstarts the secret fire that increases its life force or etheric energy content and separates out the sulfur and the mercury. Upon combining these, putrefying them, or performing distillations, whereby the distillate is poured back into the remains and filtered, etheric energy continues to increase in the solid substances and the solution become increasingly impregnated by such energy. Eventually, this etheric concentration becomes high enough that gold or silver mixed into the solution can be dissolved at the quantum level and contribute their astral essences. After a few more steps, the distilled product is refined into a glassy solid, which is the Philosopher's Stone. Production of the stone is very finicky because in addition to chemical aspects, there are also demiurgic factors that enter into the equation. For instance, the local ambient etheric and astral energy concentrations and qualities, which vary by season and location, affect the outcome. Thus, the identical procedure performed separately by two individuals may have one succeeded and the other fail. Without knowing the exact hidden variables that determine success or failure, attempting to produce the stone is an expensive and lengthy matter of trial and error. Even Fulcanelli, the most famous of modern alchemists, took over three decades of attempts before ever succeeding. The stone is said to reverse aging, allow transmutation of lead or mercury into gold or silver, and if multiplied in power through further refinements, becomes an inexhaustible glowing light. When ingested, its etheric energy adds to the human soul in such qualities that clairvoyant abilities manifest. However, anyone who has not purified their souls and gained sufficient esoteric mastery risk going insane or psychotic from soul flaws likewise being amplified. Thus, the Philosopher's Stone is an example of the low demiurgic technology of using etheric and astral energies concentrated into a solid carrier to produce seemingly miraculous effects or only highly improbable effects. Remember, etheric energy bends probability. The question then arises, what happens if the stone were made much bigger and a million times more powerful? What miracles would it accomplish and what powers would it possess? Further reading is Mystery of the Cathedrals and Dwelling of the Philosophers, both books by Fulcanelli. Dwelling of the Philosophers um, was Fulcanelli's magnum opus, straight from the horse's mouth of a living alchemist. It's a lengthy treatise by the most famous alchemist of the 20th century. Unfortunately, he goes at great lengths to compartmentalize and rearrange and obscure the secrets of alchemy while simultaneously revealing them to the world in a cryptic form. So this dense book takes some work to read and decipher, therefore it won't be everyone's cup of tea. My advice is to read this book at least five times, paying attention to the alchemical philosophy and techniques delineated rather than architectural and historical passages, which are just fillers separating from what's important. And uh, it's the same for Mystery of the Cathedrals, except it's a lot less uh, 
of a dense book. Um, so here we are. Number three, the Holy Grail. The Grail is not a magical cup from which Jesus drank, nor a golden platter that carried the decapitated head of the John the Baptist. These are only medieval inventions to reframe Gnostic knowledge under religious symbolism that appeases the church. In actuality, the Grail was a magical stone capable of manifesting thoughts into physical reality. It possessed an oracular intelligence that directed its superhuman guardians into carrying out the divine will. According to the version of the Grail story told by Wolfram von Eschenbach, it was a stone that fell from heaven, or rather, it was brought to earth by a troop of angels that remained neutral when Lucifer waged his war against God. In other words, it is an alien artifact brought to this planet and entrusted to an elite human lineage. This grail stone is an example of high demiurgic technology in addition to doing everything the philosopher's stone could do. It could also manifest food for the grail knights just by picturing what they desired. Those who looked upon it would be restored to youth and cease aging. It was described as being the most perfect of substances, as is from another parasitic world. It also shone as bright as a light and would disappear and reappear as needed. Those who were not spiritually activated could not perceive it, thus it existed on the threshold of physicality itself, and the grail seemed to carry a will of its own as if it was alive. These properties follow from a material like the Philosopher's Stone being refined, increased, and multiplied to a far higher degree of power instead of merely being imbued with amorphous, amorphous, sorry, <clears throat> reading this word, amorphous, etheric, and astral energies, the grail was imbued with such high concentrations and ordering of these that it came to possess a veritable soul. Thus, the grail stone was possessed by a soul since it communicated divine commands that were antithetical to the workings of the dark forces and the corrupt demiurge. That soul was either the Christ intelligence or an extension of it. Or put another way, the grail stone was a remote computer terminal for the demiurge. In the hands of the grail knights, it allowed interfacing with the divine extension of the demiurge, a.k.a. the higher ego of the universe, the Christ. But what happens when the grail stone falls into the hands of those with selfish motivations, then something else is invoked through the stone. And what happens? And that's what happened in ancient Egypt. Number four, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden chest gilded inside and out with gold, topped by a solid gold lid surmounted by two winged figures. It was built in Egypt around 1550 BC to house and transport a supernatural stone-like artifact. This artifact of extraterrestrial origins, hereby called the Ark Stone, previously rested inside the Great Pyramid and functioned as its central power source. 
1628 BC, Egypt was sacked by foreign Semitic invaders known as the Hyksos. They occupied Lower Egypt for several decades until they were expelled in 1550 BC. The fleeing exiles took with them the Ark Stone, housed it inside the custom-built Ark of the Covenant, and used its power to pillage their way north. Eventually, they settled in northern Canaan, modern-day Lebanon, where they integrated with the Phoenicians. They housed the Ark of the Covenant in a Phoenician-built temple of megalithic construction known as the Temple of Solomon. Contemporary with the temple whose famous megalithic stones reside today at Baalbek. This Phoenician Hyksos empire became one of the most powerful and wealthy empires of the time, spanning as far north as modern Turkey and as far south as Yemen. They were the historical basis for the biblical narrative describing the birth of the ancient Israel with all of its wealth and glory. The Egyptian queen, Hastipsut, was contemporary with the leaders of this empire and consorted with them. When her jealous nephew succeeded her as pharaoh, he mounted military campaigns in, into northern Canaan and managed to sack the Temple of Solomon, bringing the Ark Stone back to Egypt. There it resided for several generations until shortly after the reign of Pharaoh Akhenaten, around 1350 BC, one of his priests named Osarsef, who was trained in the art of operating the Ark Stone, mounted a failed rebellion against the Egyptian powers who had deposed Akhenaten. He stole the Ark Stone and his nephew and his Hebrew followers went with him out of Egypt and into Canaan, settling in what is now modern-day Israel. The priest became Moses of the Bible. The Ark of the Covenant possessed an intense etheric and electrical energy field. Only a certain bloodline trained with special protocols was able to handle it safely, whereas others would be struck and killed with energy discharges when they got too close or else erupt in sores, mimicking the effects of intense radiation. The glowing energy field surrounded the Ark of the Covenant was known as Shekinah, meaning the glory of the Lord. All biblical descriptions of the Ark and its properties indicate the Ark Stone was an alien artifact with immense etheric powers and a seeming intelligence of its own. Just a couple more chapters here, guys. Here we are. Number six, Nordic aliens and the Grail race. The questions still remain of who created the Ark Grail stone in the first place, what their role might be in the cosmic conflict between Christ and the corrupt Demiurge, and how it came into human possession. According to the medieval poet Wolfram von Eschenbach, the Grail stone was brought to earth by angels who remained neutral during the war in heaven who entrusted the stone to a divinely appointed human lineage. In reality, angels don't employ technology or possess physical artifacts. Aliens do. The Grail Stone is an alien artifact brought to Earth during 
or after a war in another dimension and or planet. The human lineage they selected were superhumans tasked with guarding the Grailstone and carrying out the dictates of Christ. We know them by various names. The followers of Horus, the Grail Knights, Rosicrucians, the secret Christian church, etc. They are very likely human-alien hybrids seeded into the population and then recruited into these spiritually elite organizations to fulfill a greater purpose. These secret societies maintain intimate contact with their alien progenitors, but they are just organized, formalized, and structured versions of the alien contactees. The contactee phenomenon, at least the small subset that isn't part of the alien disinformation campaign, are individualized examples of the Grail Knight dynamic. Who are the aliens that brought the Grail technology to Earth? Their presence pops up regularly throughout history. They were human-like sons of man in the Bible. The elemental beings described in Rosicrucian and alchemical texts, the Egyptian and Sumerian pantheon, and the jinn of the Muslim world. Nowadays, they are called Nordic or Pleiadians. They are hyperdimensional humanoids who project into our timeline and dimension and take on a noble human appearance. Mythology, alienology, and Fortean research give some insights into their nature and summary the following may be said about them. There is a warring among these beings, indicating that they are not all unified, and at the very minimum they are polarized into opposing sides, if not split into numerous independent factions. Some factions have a strong fascist orientation. They walk among us pretending to be human, some are integrated into society and hold strategic positions, whether to influence or simply observe. They are genetically compatible with us, and some of their females have engaged in human males for sexual encounters or even long-term relationships throughout history. They have selected certain humans, or perhaps their own offspring hybrids, raised in a human society for privileged ed education, training, and guidance so that these human proxies can function as vectors for their agenda, be it benevolent or hostile to mankind at large. They are extremely telepathic. They can read thoughts with minute precision, implant thoughts, scan the soul for its level of integrity or weakness, induce hallucinations, manipulate emotions, and steer a person's dreams. The human proxies they train can achieve these skills at a lower power level. They use technology to augment their innate superhuman abilities. This technology is demiurgic and can control time and gravity, affords them invisibility and anti-gravity, and allows them to walk through solid objects, meaning they can inhabit solid mountains in a dimensionally shifted condition. condition. For instance, their native environment is dimensionally shifted beyond ours, i.e. we cannot find their bases through mere physical searching. Like an angel losing its wings under certain conditions, they can lose their abilities and become mortal without the ability to return to their superhuman state, at least not within this lifetime. They get stuck here. If an entire group undergoes such a fail, they would enter into human history as an already developed and highly advanced culture that gradually undergoes decline upon becoming naturalized members of a primitive planet. 
The least evolved members of their kind are the ones who interact with the most advanced of humans. Despite their seemingly superhuman qualities, those aliens who interact most with select humans may be the most flawed of the race. Research suggests a civilization of such beings existed on a planet located between Mars and Jupiter. As per the Lucifer Rebellion myth, they descended into war. The use of demiurgic weaponry caused the planet to explode. Evacuees of both sides fled to Earth and brought their technology with them. Through interbreeding, human-alien bloodlines were born that were entrusted with this technology. These bloodlines and secret societies propagated through history, continuing the alien feud in a terrestrial setting. Eventually, a series of geological and cometary cataclysms dispersed them around the world, where they were re-established themselves and imprinted upon the primitive natives their culture, mythology, and remnants of their technology. Ancient Egyptian, Vedic, Mesoamerican, Druid, and Chinese civilizations were their offspring. Consequently, the myths of these cultures share common elements that pertain to alien and cosmic agendas. Number 7 dawn of a new cosmic day. The advanced survivors of the Atlantean cataclysms positioned themselves as royalty and scientists, priests in their new societies. The natives, compromising of lower class, were given the roles of herdsmen, agrarians, artisans, and soldiers. The typical pattern was for a small number of tall, fair-skinned elites with high knowledge and unusual powers to rule over a greater body of dark-skinned commoners. These elites were in communion with alien benefactors who would equip them with alien technology and instruction, retrieve such technology and withdraw according to the necessity and circumstance. What dictated these circumstances was the cyclical fluctuation in ambient etheric energy levels on Earth. When etheric energy levels are high, the demiurgic technology attains peak function. Alchemical procedures easily produce success, clairvoyant abilities become natural, and the veil between diminished dimensions are thin. Everything is enlivened, and gods easily walk among men. Conversely, when levels decline, demiurgic technology ceases to function correctly or at all. Humans become physically blind, higher forces withdraw from an open participation in human affairs, and the vitality of living beings grows dimmer. Mankind enters into a spiritual coma, a kind of world dream, where awareness is quarantined from perceiving the higher withdrawn realms. This etheric tide ebbs and wanes over a 25,920-year cycle in concert with the slow wobbling in the precession of Earth's axis. The Earth's precessional age, such as the age of Pisces or Aquarius, corresponds to a different level and quality of ambient etheric energy. When the levels drop beneath a certain threshold, demiurgic technology is retrieved from the human hands and mankind falls into decay. This occurred around 1000 BC when the Ark government the Ark of the Covenant disappeared from history when the Temple of Solomon was no longer filled with its glowing energy field and when mankind moved from an age of magic and enchantment toward the ever-increasing materialism and psychic blindness. 
Aside from the 25,920-year cycle, there are smaller ones that produce periodic elevation of etheric energy levels. One peak occurred around 500 to 800 AD during the time of the British Grail Kings and Charlemagne when the Grail reappeared in Europe and left behind legends later woven into Grail lore. If etheric tide returned today, civilization would be irreversibly transformed. The materialist paradigm would crumble. Alien ships would become easily visible, and thus alien contact would be forced. The alien disinformation campaign has been waged in advance of this eventually to program mankind toward reacting favorably to revealing this. By posing as saviors and ushers into a new age of peace and plenty, they can continue their control overtly. And with the return of the etheric tide would come the reactivation of the common deployment of the demiurgic technology. The Grailstone can hold, discharge, and manipulate vast quantities of etheric energy. Since etheric energy is the underlying matrix code of reality, the Grailstone is capable of directly manipulating space-time. It is instrumental in rewriting the timeline within limits and allowing influences outside of space-time bubbles such as Christ intelligence or the corrupt demiurge and alien factions allegiant to them and to deviate the timeline in major ways. Thus, with the onset of etheric tide, the advent of alien intervention, activation of clairvoyant powers in receptive humans, and reappearance of grailstone, of the Grailstone, the Cold War between various hyperdimensional factions would erupt into an overt hot war. Such a thing would completely fulfill end times prophecies. Linear, as we know, it would dissolve. Linear time, as we know, it would dissolve, and we would awaken from the world dream into a non-occluded reality where alien and cosmic powers were are in open conflict. Number eight. Polar Mythology Everything discussed above has been encoded into an ancient and modern mythology. Myths are collective equivalent of the dreams and can similarly convey messages from beings outside linear time who wish to reach a strategic recipients within it. The whole gamut from our nightly dreams to ancient mythology to modern fiction is fertile ground for extracting this hidden knowledge. Polar mythology is a specific subset of myth, dream, and fiction that contains clues specifically about the nature of our reality, alien and cosmic conflicts, fate of our world, and the role of demiurgic technology in generating our timeline and determining our fate. I have chosen the term polar because these myths concern the battle between the poles of creation because they employ the symbolism of rotation of reciprocation and around a central axis pole, and because polar implies extreme north and hence hyperborean, which alludes to the Nordic meta-civilization deeply involved in these matters. There are several reoccurring themes in polar mythology. We have fallen from a higher to a lower realm. This pertains to the human soul group incarnating into the 3D space-time and getting increasingly ensnared into the grips of the corrupt demiurge. The world axis represents a pillar, a mountain, a cross, or a tree. This symbolizes the framework of creation, the bubble of 3D space and linear time. 
in the bundle of branching timelines that defines our existence. Dueling superhumans engaged in a tug of war, these represent positive and negative factions of the meta-civilization who are engaged in a time war over our fate of our world. That which the world access rests or depends upon, the foundational element represented in the cubical stone, turtle, keystone, plug, cornerstone, or capstone, these symbolize the quantum foundation and the quantum pivot point atop which the framework of space-time rests and hinges. This function is epitomized in the grail stone, which serves not only to reprogram or pivot reality, but to anchor it in place when necessary. Vortex symbolism and magical objects of plenty that could materialize abundance or destruction depending on their use, the vortex represents a translation gateway between different realms on a macrocosmic scale. The demiurge converting higher metaphysical archetypes into physically manifest forms correlates with the image of an hourglass vortex channeling and transforming material from a higher realm to a lower. The same process appears on a microcosmic scale via the vortical etheric energy field that surrounds the grail stone, for it acts as a localized version of the demiurge, capable of manifesting or altering matter, energy, and space-time locally. Cataclysmic unhinging or skewing of the world axis. This relates to the abuse of the demiurgic technology by ego-driven individuals, such as the Mosaic priesthood in ancient Egypt. This caused a pivoting of the timeline toward a new, unwelcome direction. The skewing of timelines is represented in polar mythology as the unhinging of a millstone. To name one example, the very framework of creation was upset through such an act, causing the Logos to send a counterbalancing influence into our reality bubble to make a correction. This influence is the Christ intelligence. The avenging hero, prodigal son, or innocent fool who overthrows corruption and restores balance. This aspect of polar mythology describes our spiritual purpose and pathway into this world. It follows from the fact that the Logos require its troops to incarnate into the linear time bubble with the help anchor and the corrective influence. In summary, polar mythology alludes to the Grail Stone anchoring a particular reality or timeline in place. Its abuse resulted in our further collective fall into the world dream toward increasing ensnarement of the illusion linear time. The illusion... The, okay, sorry, sorry. Toward increasing ensnarement in the illusion of a linear type of time. Number nine, the end. Polar mythology encodes three phases of history. The first phase concerns a prior golden age where the demiurge was in harmony with the logos and all was well. At its end, the first phase decayed into warning among the gods and their ruining of the cosmic framework. It concludes with the higher beings, positive and or negative, falling into a lower realm of existence. The second phase concerns our present world, which sprang into existence as a consequence of various falls that severed us from the Logos. 
The traumatic consequence of the first phase induced a collective sleep. Hence, we have fallen asleep into the dream world, into the world dream. The third phase concerns our future, how the effects of the first phase will reach their ultimate conclusion. This is always depicted as ending with the final war and the dissolution of the world as we know it. The first and third phases take place outside the world dream, outside of linear time as we know it. Currently, we stand at the cusp between the second and third phases. Thus, we are now undergoing an awakening experience that will bring us out of the spiritual suspended animation. But what awaits us on the other side is not the golden age of the first phase, but the concluding stages of the conflicts that began back then. Thus, early conflict between positive and negative will elevate to a higher level where, under new etherically activated conditions, it can carry on towards its resolution. During the second phase, the open conflicts of the first phase took on a more covert form. This was especially true after the 1000 BC when a quarantine was put in place around our planet by a powerful third-party alien group. The quarantine enforced a cessation of open warfare by various factions of the alien meta-civilization. The idea was to allow humanity to involve with less interference. Nonetheless, manipulation continued on a covert basis, giving rise to the alien Cold War mentioned previously. The quarantine also seemed to involve a further reduction of ambient etheric energy levels on Earth akin to lowering body temperature to induce suspended animation. The quarantine probably came about due to the cataclysmic events in ancient Egypt, when the Mosaic priesthood royally screwed up the timeline and placed the Jewish people into bondage with the corrupt Demiurge. As mentioned, regretting the mistake made a few centuries earlier, they may have invoked the Christ intelligence to liberate them and the world. Shortly thereafter, the Ark and Grailstone disappeared from history and God ceased talking to men. This initiated the quarantine and the timeline as we know it. The Christ intelligence did not reach its zenith until a thousand years later when the advent of Christianity, but the true and original Christianity was short-lived. It was rapidly usurped that by an institutionalized behemoth that waged the spiritual enslavement in the name of Christ. Thus the mission of Christ was aborted, or rather delayed. Something went wrong with the original awakening sequence. There is an indication that the second phase should have ended during Roman times, but the deviation of Christ's message toward further empowerment of the corrupt Demiurge caused both Christ and Demiurge to continue existing in a limbo state. Thus, the past 2,000 years have been a kind of overtime game or remedial phase in which these two forces, now deeply active in our world, have been busy setting their pieces in place. When the quarantine lifts and the second phase ends, these pieces will go into play during the third phase. The third phase will continue in an etherically activated environment no longer constrained as much by linear time. Alienology and Fordian research suggests that alien time travelers who are now here and have been amassing for decades are from the third phase. 
Thus we are caught in a time war by forces of our own probable futures. The third phase may even feed back into the first, creating a grand oroboric time loop that is in constant flux. Being that we only remember the final iteration of any time loop, the timeline we now occupy is the final one that will finally exit the loop when the third phase ends. The ultimate implication is that via demiurgic technology, hijacking of timeline originally took place in the future and reconfigured the past, initiating a war for balance by the positive forces. The hyperdimensional battle required going back in time, even incarnating into the past to continue the war on the terrestrial chessboard. The remaining positive factions of the meta-civilization would assist these ground forces. They would receive help in the form of a synchronistic support, outright intervention in critical situations, subconscious training, or oracular avenues such as synchronicities, dreams, visions, inspirations, and direct messages if needed. Enter the heroic avenging fool, known in polar mythology as Horus, Parzival, Hamlet, Amlodi, Kulervo, Samson, Theseus, and other variations of the same archetype. The path of the heroic fool is our path, for we are the soldiers of light born here who must survive the conditions of the matrix control system by gaining mastery over our lower selves while nurturing and activating the full manifestation of spirit. We are fools in that we have been temporarily discontinued from our higher states of awareness because others who are heavily entrenched in the matrix see our wisdom as folly and because we have not taken on social programming to the degree that they have. In polar mythology, the hero fool seeks to avenge his father, who was murdered by the hero's uncle, who took his mother as his wife and corrupted her. The father represents the divine logos, evil uncle, the corrupt demiurge, and the mother matrix. The corrupt demiurge usurped the logos and took the control of the matrix. The avenging hero represents the Christ intelligence, whose role is to destroy the control system and bring the matrix back into the rightful harmonization of the logos. The heroic fool, however, represents the more portion of the Christ intelligence that is working within the system to undermine it. The ground team, so to speak, thus the hero and the fool are two sides of the same coin, one facing up and the other facing down. The way of the fool entails being forged by the fiery trials of life manifesting to the full attributes of spirit. This includes the purity of heart, intellectual prowess, and indomitable strength of will. Unlike Adam and Eve who lacked intellect and strength of the forces, purity of heart of the corrupt demiurge who lack the purity of heart We must embody all of these qualities together in balance. Purity of heart means acting with singular intention. It's harmonization with our higher consciousness, wisdom, and guidance without the self-doubt and without the weakness of socially and genetically grafted onto our souls by the matrix system. Esoteric training paths fundamentally aim to disengage the initiate from lower outer aspects and engage in the higher and inner. By overcoming the lower self and recognizing the true higher self, one overcomes the soporific 
pressures of the world of linear time and material determinism. As a result, spirit influences the world instead of vice versa. That is how the demiurge will be placed back under the reins of Logos. And when we cease to continually inflate the matrix control system with our ignorant participation in it, when we instead shift the fulcrum of our consciousness toward the waking world or the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus called it, that is when the old world as we know it will collapse in upon itself. It's already happening to some degree. This will happen in synchrony by lifting up the quarantine, the return of the etheric tide, and the dissolution of linear time, and the visible breaching of alien activities into our consensus reality. In the meantime, as we finish out the second phase, we must continue being true to our higher selves and nobler qualities. We have to be mindful of what originates from our lower nature versus our higher nature distinguished between them so that we can consistently choose the latter. This will tide us over until divine grace or some cosmic shift grants us etheric activation and spiritual transcendence that currently seem beyond practical reach. Read more. In the Gnosis, Alchemy Grail Arc in the Demiurge book written by Tom Montauk, our guest of the day. And I mean, like I said, what, what, a, what an incredibly in-depth just going over of his book, you know? Um, so get a, get a, um, get a feel for the, for what owning that book and having that book on your bookshelf can, uh, can give you some some good insight to decades of research there. And without further ado, beautiful existers, we are going to jump right in to the interview with Tom Montauk. Enjoy. Hello, Fire Tribe. Welcome to Rising. From the ashes, I'm Danny Naki Dan. I'm the homie Romy. Hello, hello. Dan is in a public What's space happening? today. What's on good? The, traveling on the road, bud. This is your first <laughs> on the road show. Yeah. No, I did no. one with you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, in a hotel room in San Francisco. This is correct. <laughs> that was a, a Duolingo. It was a good day. It was a great interview as well. So, who knows? Maybe the mercurial solutions will. Uh, transmute themselves into this flowy conversation with our guest today to wrap up the themes that we've been going in on this past couple months uh you know aliens paranormal energy physics like yeah like what so (laughs) let's introduce let's introduce this guest today we have um with us tom montauk who i had the pleasure of speaking with uh prior on the moon mystery show with Kaylee. And uh, I was I was really captivated by a conversation because his cohesion and literacy and and just pure, great research. uh, kind of threads a lot of weaves that are missing in a lot of the paranormal talk, in my opinion. And he's not new to the scene by any means, I think. You wrote your first art, uh, set of articles or your book um, on discerning alien information 10 years ago? 
Yeah, yeah, it was right around 2008. And leading up to that, I was on all these UFO forums and visiting websites and watching the media on it. And there was just so much of a heavy push coming out, trying to market aliens as being our space brothers, you know, that we need to reach our our open arms out to them and welcome them in. And uh, I mean, there's even an agenda back then to try to give amnesty to a lot of these black ops programs that had been colluding with these aliens, mm. you know, so, so, so there's a simultaneous push both from the ET angle and uh, a lot of the, the, the secret military angle trying to get us to, you know, just forgive, forget, open our arms and, and kind of move into the future arm in arm with them. Only mm. problem is not all aliens are good. So, you know, I detected it as a possible disinformation push from the negative factions. Um, and so I wrote, and well, and so I dove into all the literature I could find of ex- actual examples of alien disinformation. And uh, I figured out what common themes and patterns they're using. And I outlined it all in my book. And, and my book is free on my website. So you guys mm-hmm. can check it out if you want. Absolutely. Uh, I've sent the book out uh, to our Telegram group too. Um, we we got the we're on a Telegram social social media platform. It's a good one. And actually, you have a Telegram channel, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for doing that. Of course, man. Of course. No, it's a great it's a great uh, book. I love I like the way that you you, you write. It's, uh, it's it's straightforward, and that's what I, that's actually what I really like about. The way that you bring your research to the table is because you're you're just you're kind of like a data guy, right? And you went to school for physics and electrical engineering, so you actually have like an understanding of you know the the physical factions of like an explanation that can be explained through you know through through different actual scientific theories, and that's why you know we we've been trying to weave together the. Um, the concept of of energy and history, right? Like uh, history, in history, there's this big like kind of empty void of did we have, like, were we using etherical energy? Were we, uh, did we understand something more than we were being told? Is electricity or electromagnetism or even scalar physics something really that's new or has it been tapped into even since the times of ancient Egypt and things like that. So that's kind of like what is a big major thread we've been kind of pulling on with these past couple months of themes. Like, what is the connection between these different energetic hotspots or sacred sites on the earth and people's paranoia, uh, paranoia, no paranormal experiences, (laughs) you know, and how, how, how does the energy and the electromagnetic hotspots of the earth play with these realms? Mm hmm. No, that's a, such an important question because, I mean, if you study the history books, you're only getting, it's kind of like the Plato's cave allegory, right? We're looking only at the shadows on the cave wall of history. Mm-hmm. And, but what's actually driving historical events, we know they're factors that historians don't even take into account. You know, I mean, I'm not even talking about just secret societies, but actual cosmic factors, you know, not just pole shifts and uh, giant EMP ejections, you know, from coronal mass ejections from the sun, but also possibly the fluctuations in etheric energy on the planet. You know, not only the amount of etheric energy, but the qualities of it. Like, you know, you know, I mean, you guys are familiar with the idea of the processional ages, you know, like right now, we're in the age of Pisces going into Aquarius and before Pisces, it was Aries and then Taurus. Um, if you, and if you go back in time, 
you find a lot of these themes, you know, like like bull worship during the age of Taurus and, and ram worship. Uh, you know, actually, I think I think that came before that. But yeah, so um, but why it wasn't just the constellations in the sky that they were mimicking. I think the constellations were just their mental mnemonic for what is the 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 predominant etheric energy template that's influencing earthly events during that particular age, right? Um, and so, like with the age of Aquarius, which we're moving into now, uh, Aquarian uh, the, the Aquarian energy is is all about um, it's all about networking, communication, um, you know, sharing ideas, communal interactions. And, and if, if you look at, uh, like, like in hypnosis, you know, when they do past life regressions, they can also do forward life regressions to explore different probable futures, what the future is going to hold. Uh, and some souls claim to be from the future, you know, like time traveling back spiritually into current bodies. And what they all seem to report is that the future is a lot like what I described about the Aquarian age, that, you know, it's, it's very communal, very uh, intellect oriented, kind of spiritual, uh, you know, a bit, a bit new age, but um it fits with that whole entire theme. And if you go back in time during the age of like Taurus or, or Ram or Gemini, you know, you keep on going back, you find all these themes keep interlocking with these, with these particular energies. Uh, and another thing that you find in history is, this is pretty interesting, is that you, you find mentions of these ancient magical artifacts, whether weapons or magical stones that can manifest food and alter reality. And what they all mention is that they were working really good at one time. But then at a certain point in time, they started waning in power or started malfunctioning, you know, started killing people because they start, you know, it's like a, it's just like a malfunctioning high voltage transformer. It just sends out sparks and it starts killing people. And I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant here in the Old Testament. That's one example. There's uh, another one too. Yeah. Oh, I forget the name of that stupid staff that they hold, but it has like three prongs on each end. Mm -hmm. And it looks like a weird probe type thing but it's supposed to like have an electrical property to it and be used as a weapon yeah i heard about that shown by marduk marduk's usually holding it but i forget what it was called yeah i always forget well you know i mean in the, in the indian in the indian legends there's the the vajra the vajra yeah that's what it is weapon. the vajra okay yeah, yeah so you got the vajra exactly. you've got uh and i think even even poseidon's trident mm -hmm. is is a depiction of that same yeah, that same principle. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's these different uh, iterations of it through through history. And we found like, I, I like how you um, I kind of want to get into the origin story, because you do have a background of having some experiences, you don't have to necessarily share those. But, um, you know, there's there's cross correlations between people who have experiences and people who don't. And I think that you ha <laughs> you have a lot of those qualities that someone who has had experiences might have throughout their life. Um, but uh, the the uh, the scalar technology, which is just it's super fascinating. It's it's kind of a hot topic right now. Right. Um, in in these realms. So I think it's important to bring up on this conversation. And I want to touch back in on it at other points as well. But um, you say in your your video, your introduction to scalar technology that, you know, around the, the 1800s is when physics really started to change. Um, but it wasn't only just slightly before that, that alchemy changed from chemistry and, you know, where did physics, where did the science of physics start to really come into play? Was it through the church? And like, was it a split from alchemy? Is it that same kind of concept where 
there was like integrity and maybe some spiritual resonance in this science. And then it got taken away uh, and stripped away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, before, before the 1800s, I mean, if you go back in time to the middle ages and, and the Renaissance uh, around that time, as you know, like with Isaac Newton, for example, right. He was the, the, uh, one of the major figures, figures in physics. And even he was an alchemist, you know, even he believed in, in certain principles of magic and, and, and to him, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a totally different thing from studying gravity. You know, it was all part of this universal science of how reality actually works. You know, it was only later on in history when, when during the 1800s, when um, it was after the age of enlightenment, when, when a lot of these intellectuals, they, they prided themselves on the progress that they were making in mathematics hydraulics, mechanics, and so on. They're, they're able to do so much with it to, to build amazing things and explain a lot of things that they became a bit um, pompous and overconfident, you know, too much hubris in uh, the capabilities of the intellect to where they, they, they put the five senses and linear left brain thinking on a pedestal. And uh, they, they started deriding and really looking down on anything that they still couldn't yet explain, like alchemy. Or, or magic or uh you know like like even even um early hypnotism um antoine mesmer antoine mesmer he was actually a clairvoyant and when he hypnotized people he didn't just like you know wave a pendulum he actually like stroked their energy field down from their heads down into their torso and it caused the etheric energy in their brain area to like move downwards so that the brain kind of conks out but it's still semi-conscious and that's what was his um, idea of the hypnotic state. You know, that's why he called it animal magnetism because animal meaning like life force energy and magnetism being like an attractive force. So he's able to manipulate the life force energy in people and move it down. But even during his time, um, he was quite he was quite ridiculed for his theories. And so likewise, just like with Isaac Newton and everything that he was into, turning into just ordinary boring physics, everything that Antoine Mesmer was doing became just ordinary boring hypnotism. You know, so a lot of the things that that we take for granted nowadays in science, they had their origins in alchemy or in magic or in astrology and in all these different fields. But um, uh, it was people's ignorance and intellectual hubris that kind of um, diminished it. And I think I think in addition to that, that principle, there's also I also detect an artificial agenda as well, whether it's alien or some sort of secret society influence or something where I think they they manipulated a lot of these intellectuals to suppress certain ideas, you know, um, whether, whether threatening them or even just like mm -hmm. telepathically programming them, which, which is easy to do. Cause I mean, aliens do it all the time. If you look at the abduction literature, alien beings, they are telepathic. And not only when they're talking, when they're communicating to you face to face, but also when you're back in your ordinary waking life and you get some strange idea or compulsion in your head, well, if they can do it during an abduction, why couldn't they do it? You know, when you're awake in a, mm -hmm. in a slightly phased out state where you can't even see them, right? So you don't know that your thoughts are being influenced. And so if, if aliens can do that, then what have they been able to do throughout history <laughs> to influence certain key historical figures to, to affect, you know, the, the course of, of time. Um, so, you know, getting, you know, just to conclude this thought on physics, yeah, physics as we have it today is a, it's, it's a husk. It's a husk of its origins you know, and the origins includes, like I said, magic, astrology, alchemy, all these things. And, and what those things have in common is that they all deal with uh, subtle energy fields. You know, when we talk about astrology, for example, how is it that certain planetary and star alignments can affect us here on Earth? Well, I think it's probably either gravitational waves or etheric energy fields that are being 
influenced by where certain planets are because each planet has a certain vibrational spectrum to it in, in the both in the gravitational sense and also in the etheric sense and so depending on which ones are combining in certain ways it's, it's just like just like playing different keys on a keyboard like a musical keyboard you know you get different chords like one chord might sound sad one chord might sound happy and mm-hmm. so you get these different planetary alignments and you get these vibrational fields on earth you know depending on what time of day where you are on, on, on earth you get this combination of forces and that affects you psychologically it affects your probability of experiencing certain things that it, it, it imprints you when you're born um and so there's this whole like etheric science that mainstream science right now isn't even acknowledging and it's it's a real tragedy but luckily you know people like you and me and, and everyone else that's into this uh we're, we're kind of looking forward beyond current science and and trying to think of uh ways to figure out how that actually works and how to apply it super super uh interesting thing to to let everybody know and remind everybody is that the resonance of your zodiac alignment is is interesting and it has homage to the ancients like basically talking about the music of the spheres which is like a an an astrology astrological and music theory that basically puts specific uh zodiac alignments to specific keys in the musical scale and like you're saying it's like you you might have something that literally resonates with you way more than any other tone any other sound any other note and it's a specific moment in time captured and through celestial things which is it's crazy uh it's crazy it's a super deep theory that that started with pythagoras and it got picked up a little bit later by robert flood and some of these other people but kind of like died back out but i think it's something that's that's picking up a little bit more speed lately and i think people should try to listen to the notes that they say are recorded with these different zodiac signs because you know it might be a really good way for you to meditate or to tap into these different like um these different waveforms and just i don't know be maybe more optimized and healthier and dan i saw you uh unmuting your mic there did you have a question my good man no man i just keep muting it for noise oh nice nice uh, what, what is, I, uh, I have lots of questions. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Hit them up, hit them up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was wondering if you could get into like the, the five aspects to understanding the, the phenomenon of, of like whatever aliens, UFOs, uh, that I think. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I did a, a video talking about the bigger aspects of the alien presence. And in there, I get into all, all the different five aspects. But so, I mean, I mean, I'll touch only on, on a couple of them, um, the most important ones. So first of all, um, you know, when you when you look at ufology, the, the earliest phases of ufology were all about studying lights in the sky. You know, the idea that, okay, they're just lights. We don't even know what they are. Uh, and then if you go one step beyond that, they're like, okay, they are alien ships, but they're just out there. They're just kind of shining lights at us. They're interacting with us from a distance. And so there's just this huge component of ufology that still thinks that that's all it is. Like um, like the more recent things that came out with uh, um, the different uh, naval encounters with like the Tic Tac UFO, for example. Um, you know, they, they view the alien presence as something mysterious. You know, they're only sending probes. They're only uh, shining lights at us from a distance. but the truth of the matter is the alien presence is entirely, how would you say, ubiquitous. It's like it's everywhere. It's omnipresent almost. 
like any any one of you right now could have a phased out alien in your room looking over your shoulder at what you're doing on a screen for example it can detect what you are it can detect what you're thinking it can to some degree influence what thoughts and feelings that you have and i say this based on having studied the ufo literature and the abduction literature for for literally decades i mean i first got into it when i was uh First, I really started researching it when I was 12. So that, that was back in 1992. I got a library card. And I read every UFO book at the local library and then all the metaphysics books and and so on. And I subscribed to UFO magazines and journals and, you know, got video. And any, anyway, I, I studied a lot of it. And ever since I had my website, I've had thousands of people contacting me by email or chats or, you know, even sometimes phone and video sharing with me their stories, their personal anecdotes and what they've concluded about their experiences. So point being... I've come across a ton of data points that point to this, the idea that the alien presence is relatively ubiquitous. Um, and I say that because they have the ability to do that. They have what's called phasing technology. Mm. You know, some people call it phasing technology. I and mean, phasing, you hear that term in, in science fiction a lot. And all it means is that you can you can alter your your quantum radio tuner, sort of, so to speak, to phase out from this five sense linear reality into like a parallel reality where you can still kind of peek through the curtain at what's going on here, you know, so they can see us, but unless you're clairvoyant, you know, or have really good intuition, like a, like a baby or uh, even pets, pets can see them because pets are more psychic than humans are, you know, um, pets can detect them a lot of times. Uh, but, you know, usually at a, at a very deep intuitive level, you can sense when there's a presence around, you know, whether it's a ghost or a demon or an alien. Uh, and usually when an alien is around, if it's like the, the, the negative type, you'll feel that there's something off. Like it, it feels like it doesn't fit, you know, like there's something very wrong. Like it doesn't fit in this reality. And what you're really picking up on though, is that um, the grays in particular, the grays, they're not, they're not, um, they're not original organic life forms. You know, they're, they're like bioengineered and they're partly cybernetic, you know? So, so they're not like robots made of gears and motors. They're they're more like androids or or clones, you know, like a cross between a clone and an android. So like something you can you can grow in a vat, you know, from actual like genetic material, and and alter it at certain stages. Um, and so you get this artificial life form that's that has very strong psychic powers, um, is very hive mind oriented, but doesn't really have too much of a mind of its own. Okay, um, and so when when you are in the presence of a gray, like I'll give you an example. The first abduction experience that I remember was probably when I was about two or three, okay? And I remember being in my mom's bedroom in my apartment in Germany, and uh, it was during the afternoon, and she went out, and when she closed the door behind her, I was, all of a sudden, I would remember all the past times this would happen. And what would happen next is that the door would open, and in would file, you know, 10, 12 grays, you know, the typical grays, uh, wearing cobalt blue suits, and they would come for me. And a lot of times I would hide under the bed or in the corner, but, you know, each time they would grab me. But the point is, um, during that time, I was only, you know, I could just barely talk, but I, I called them the the Steine mention or the Graue mention, which means the stone men or the gray men. Uh, gray men, that's obvious because they're gray. Um, but I called them stone men because they reminded me of like animated stone statues. You know, you look at a stone statue, you know, it's not alive. You know, it's just made of stone. But what if it could move? You know, what if it could like move and to like a kid's mind that totally freaked me out because I couldn't make sense of it. It just felt totally wrong. It's like it's like if you crossed a, a corpse with a, a spider with an animated stone statue. If you, if, you, if you combine those three things, that's the vibe that I got from these gray creatures. OK, um, 
so these grays they they they're more like um it's like it's like on a chessboard you know funny enough on the chessboard you got these pawns out in front right they're short and bald you know kind of like grays uh, i find that kind of funny <laughs> but uh yeah you know but um but there's a lot of them and they're they're put out front to do all the menial labor of you know grabbing the abductee and um undressing him or her and you know doing the basic procedures and so on putting them back and a lot of times abductees that's all that they remember they only remember what they see the most of which is these grays so that that's what we normally hear of and that's why you know even back in the 90s we had gray alien t-shirts i had like 10 of them you know we had like gray alien <laughs> t-shirts you know the the, the schwa stuff uh, you know, all these, the gray icon, you know, it's even an emoji now, right? So it's an official Unicode emoji. So it's, it's become part of our culture because they are so, uh, so universal, but, um, behind them, there are, you know, several other alien groups that have been reported, including the humanoid types, you know, some call them the Nordics, but that's kind of misleading because when you think of Nordic, you think like tall blonde, but they're not necessarily blonde. I mean, they can be brown hair brown eyed too, you know, but, but they look like us. I mean, they, they could walk on the street and other than certain things like their eyes being a little bit larger than normal, uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily recognize who they are. Right. So you got the humanoid types. And then, um, and of course we all know about the, the reptilians, you know, David Icke has popularized those, but you know, reptilians have been, it's been part of ancient history and culture for, for thousands of years. You know, there's those figurines that they found in the middle East that are many, many thousands of years old of these reptilian creatures and, um, the Nagas in the uh, in Hindu mythology and so on, right? Uh, and the Native Americans, they, they got plenty of stories about the, the serpent people and so on. So Dragons. that's not new either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, I mean, even if you think about like the, like the Merovingian kings of France, they believe that their origin story is that a human woman mated with a, a um, what do they call it? Uh, I forgot what it's called, but, but it's, it's like a sea creature. You know, like a like an amphibian reptilian yeah. type sea creature mm -hmm. made with her, and they gave birth to 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 their to their bloodline, right? So, you know, the alien presence has been kind of on the periphery of human consciousness and history for um, since beginning of of recorded history, and even before then. I mean, if you look at Lloyd Pye's work, for example, he, he talks about the genetic alteration of human history. You know, just mm -hmm. how our genome. <clears throat> if if you look at our DNA, it looks like we are genetically modified organisms. You know, we ourselves are not natural like uh, like monkeys are or, you know, uh, things like that. I mean, it's either, either we're genetically modified or we've been domesticated, you know, the same way wolves supposedly turned into chihuahuas or something, which is kind of ridiculous. But hey, here it is. Right. And, and here we are compared to our primate ancestors. So, you know, my ultimate conclusion is that the alien presence, not only is it everywhere, but it's been everywhere since the beginning of, of human history. And, uh, and therefore it plays a very important part in our future going forward. So, and that, that's where my book, uh, discerning alien disinformation comes in because I outline from their, in their own words, what their agenda is for, for humanity. And, um, and so right now, when I look at current events, you know, whether it's Trump stuff or climate change or, you know, the great, well, the great reset stuff, all of it, it ties into the alien presence ultimately, because that's what's waiting at the end of that tunnel. If we keep going in that direction. Uh, yeah, totally. Well, let me ask you a question because we're we, we like to get dive into history around here, and uh, we did we just did an episode on cats and dogs, and like the the idea of them maybe being alien has came up. Is there any type of cat or dog alien creatures, uh, from your knowledge? Well, you know, in my in my knowledge, no. I mean, we we know we know that there are reports of them, but 
the reports are so isolated and sporadic mm -hmm. that for me it's more uh, it's more of an outlier and mm -hmm. so it, so i mean so what does it mean if it's an outlier it means that it's so rare that either it's just noise like it's not actually real you know it could be fabrications or they are real but they're not really taking part in abductions you know so you don't we don't normally encounter mm -hmm. them so mm -hmm. it's one of those two possibilities so i can't i can't rule it out but it's definitely not in the top four that's for sure yeah. And then is like uh like skinwalkers and like other type of cryptid monsters that we see, are those uh alien type beings or are those something totally different and mm, yeah, so like yeah, spiritual earth consciousness. Yeah, and well, in my opinion, I think I think if you were to capture one, you could dissect it, you know, you could look look at its DNA and its blood. So I think I think they're they're physical enough when they're here. But that doesn't mean that they can't phase out and go back to whatever dimension that they came from. You know, like a lot of these, mm. um, uh, some people believe that UFOs, like, and that includes crashed alien spacecrafts, they're not they're not actually spacecrafts, like you know, built in a in a in a, in a factory and you know, sent through space to Earth. It's more like they are um, uh, they are physical things that are projected from another dimension. It's it's, it's you know, you know, like um, what do you call it? Um, ectoplasm in parapsychology when when a psychic can literally generate goo you know from from the ether you know so you get something physical but it, it originated you know in the thought or in, in the etheric realm well if you take that principle and you and you take it to a much higher level in theory you could use consciousness and etheric energies to to design and project a physical vehicle and bodies even that you can then travel around here in 3d and if it crashes then sure you know the government could uh, reverse engineer it and derive some sort of technological benefit from it but that doesn't mean that it originated in uh like a purely physical form all right yeah so it's like a a thought form that is so you think about it it gets created and you can put it into the physical realm and it still has physical properties but it wasn't manufactured in like a like a manufacturing place Factory. it was created through thought yeah yeah, and yeah, and yeah, right. And if it is manufactured, uh, there's some signs that they are grown, kind of like crystals are grown. Like, like if you grow oh. a crystal and, and, and liquid solution, that they're that they're grown, and they can grow them. Um, it's not even just 3D printing, but you know, a lot of these uh, abduction reports talk about how when they go into these alien crafts, they don't, they don't. Um, there's no seams. There's no bolts. Mm -hmm. You know everything's smooth. Mm -hmm. it, it is like it was. It was like it was three D printed, but three D printing you get layers to it, like like really defined layers, and you don't really see that in these alien ships. So it does seem like they're grown. However, um, there has been like like a crashed wreckage that they analyzed, and you can see that there's alternating layers of I think it was aluminum and bismuth. You know, like some of those metals, like alternating layers of those. And funny enough, when I was in college, my quantum physics professor he specialized in something called epitaxial something it's vapor deposition i think and it's, it's where they they take um they, they, well they yeah you can take aluminum you can take bismuth and and you fire it at, at a at a surface to create a layer and then and you fire a different element and it creates another layer and so you build it up and i remember him showing a slide of what he was working on a cross section of it and to me it looked identical to what was later shown in the alien wreckage which i think was a a, a sample possibly from roswell mm -hmm. which was 1947 yeah. You know, that was like the 1940s. And this this physicist guy, he was showing me that in uh, in 1998, you know. So that, that was way ahead of its time. So I think I think it takes about 50 years possibly for certain alien technologies to become mainstream. You know, because by that point, 
by that point that the black ops military has already moved on to something newer. So, you know, the old mm-hmm. stuff that doesn't even apply to them anymore. They're like, ah, screw it. You know, we're going to, we're going to release it through our corporate channels and make, you know, billions of dollars off of it to fund our, our projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, um, alien, alien technological money laundering in a way, if you think about it, mm-hmm. right. They're, they're taking alien technology and they're getting rich off of it. So for all, you know, you know, you're, you're technology from 50 years ago, whether it's transistors or lasers or, uh, you know, even, even like RAM chips for memory and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right now we're using it, which means that whatever the Black Ops has is hundreds, if not a thousand years ahead of what we have in, in the mainstream. I, I think they're really concerned about, uh, you know, tapping in and making portal windows to uh, uh, if and I'm 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 I'm, I'm on the fence that uh, they do actually are fully capable of walking uh, along different timelines. Um, I have no no doubt in that technology. Talking about uh, that's just personally what my intuition believes is because this is this is some of the higher of echelons of like trying to tap into every market obtainable would be go to every timeline obtainable to be able to control every or at least Mm -hmm. have your fingers dipped in each pie is, you know, it's it's what the plan is, right? Like we need to have ultimate, you know gnosis of everything that's happening in every timeline because this timeline is sure as shit not enough for us mm-hmm. you know so on and so forth but um <laughs> you know looking at like different things we were talking earlier just to, to take a couple steps back here um about the the penetrable type of technology like uh telekinesis and and things like or telepathic things you know technology and being able to implement uh our thought waves through you know through telepathy and i was thinking about wow well russia has had things like the ray gun for i mean decades now at the bare minimum mm-hmm. so you know they, and then they we have like all this like in my opinion fake beef between these different governments you know and i think each 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 little place has their as you uh, beautifully stated in your video that Dan, Dan brought up these five key points and in, like alien information, which my favorite was the hyper historical going and looking at like the hyper history of each of these cultures and how they might be describing different forms of like alien uh, intelligence or, or what have you. Um, uh, huh? What was that? Weaponry. Weaponry. Yes. Um, and so I was, I was just wondering what um, the 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 hyper historical origins, like what civilizations or stories or specific stories that that you found in your research that might be clearly stating a uh, an alien influence. Like it might be a story of that type of encounter because we know mm-hmm. about Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel's wheel might be one of those stories, or the. The Bagda Gavita and the entire Vedas might be one of those stories in all of ancient Egypt. Uh, mm-hmm. So, w- what is your what is your um, thoughts on that type of hyper historical rabbit hole there? Yeah. yeah. Well, first of and, all, and, let's, uh, yeah. can, I, can I add to that a little bit? And mm-hmm. is there like a earlier civilization that we are unaware of mm-hmm. that you may have gleaned from from learning about aliens and and whatnot and if they were had a presence here before those civilizations developed. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you look at us nowadays, we have tribes in jungles that are might they might as well have existed ten thousand years ago. You know, 
based on their level of sophistication. Yet here we are with computers and jet airplanes and satellites, right? So we've got an advanced civilization living side by side with relatively, uh, if you primitive people, if you look at strictly mm-hmm. technological level. And so you can you could have had that ten thousand years ago for real too. You know, you could have had the hunter gatherers back then, just as science believes, you know, just archaeologists believe, and you could have had a smaller group of technologically advanced people as well. And they they're the ones who would have built um, the original foundation of the Great Pyramids. Uh, you know, they're the ones who would have built uh, a lot of the big, big megalithic blocks in Central and South America, like uh, like the ones in in Peru, for example, Sacsay Huaman. Those those blocks are amazing, right? And and you know a lot of them they seem to date right around the turn of the the last ice age. So right around nine thousand, ten thousand, twelve thousand years ago, that's where a lot of it seems to have started uh, for us, at least this cycle around. Uh, and so one of the things I've been studying quite a bit is trying to track down the origins and the presence and the agenda of the so-called ancient mariners. You know, it's like a global seafaring uh, society yeah global seafaring society that 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 they had a presence for sure by definitely by right around 5500 bc 100 for sure before that it's, it gets kind of iffy if you feel if you go earlier than that you get into things like um darren kuyu the underground city in turkey yeah. uh which can hold tens of thousands of people that were living underground i mean why why would you build a city for people underground when you could just easily live on the surface right i mean how how harsh were the conditions on the surface due to hordes of, you know, enemies, climate change, asteroid bombardment, maybe even alien enemies, you know, trying to trying to smoke them out. Um, that would drive you then underground for who knows how long to sustain a population of, you know, 30,000 people with cows and grains and everything all underground. I mean, that's, that's just insane. And then if you, if you go from there a little bit forward in time, then you run into um, Gobekli Tepe, the, the, sort of a Stonehenge kind of a thing in, in Turkey, uh, which was intentionally buried as if to preserve it for all future time, which we have only in the past like 10, 20 years started to dig up and try to analyze what is it on these carved stone uh, pillars that they were talking about. And a lot of people have done research into that. And they're thinking that um, a lot of these figures on these pillars refer to constellations. And some of the other things that feature on there have to do with uh, an ancient cataclysm that wiped out that civilization you know, 8,000 BC or, you know, even, even earlier than that. Um, but that was all happening in Turkey. Yeah. And so things were going on back then. Uh, simultaneously with that, we could have had another civilization on the other side of the planet, right around um, Indonesia, you know, and, and, and like in, in the occult legends that that would have been like Mu or Lemuria, right. And the other stuff would have been Atlantis. Um, but yeah, you, you had multiple advanced civilizations back then and they left their legacy which even by 1500 BC was still active. Uh, people don't know that the entire Bronze Age, which bronze back then is like what oil is to us right now. You know, right now we've got oil corporate corporations, oil barons back in the 1800s. Oil is what built modern civilization. You know, so it's what drove a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of progress nowadays. But back then it was bronze because with bronze you can build weapons, tools, right? You can, you can do, you can, you know, you can improve agriculture, farming, uh, everything like that. And, and so whoever started and controlled the bronze age were the, the masters, the economic, political, military masters of the time. And they were the descendants of the ancient mariners before them that traced back to Darren Kuyu, Gobekli Tepe, 
and possibly even before the turn of the last ice age, which, you know, give, given their advancement, given their knowledge, they're probably clairvoyant too. They had really good mathematical and geometric ability. So they're able to track they, I mean, they're obsessed with astronomy mm-hmm. and probably astrology too, but they, they're obsessed mm-hmm. with that, that stuff. They seem to have known scalar physics too. They knew how to manipulate etheric energy. And so using, using their knowledge, that's how they were able to shape and soften and levitate stones to build, you know, the base of the great pyramid um, to, to build a lot of these megalithic structures, uh, Stonehenge later in time, right around 3500 BC. Um, and so they maintained a tradition over thousands of years uh, having to do with advanced technologies, etheric stuff, scalar stuff, probably ley lines as well. Um, they, they're aware of a lot, you know. I mean, some some people would say that they were aliens, and I guess it's possible because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we, like, for example, like humanoid aliens, right? They look like us, they mm-hmm. can pass for us. Um, but they exist in a they they exist not within the same linear time cycle that we are. It's like they're 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 not locked into it like we are, right? So it's like we're we're locked into one radio station, and they can like kind of tune between stations. So they're they're like a level above us. Um, but the thing is, supposedly it's possible for them to come here and get stuck here, so they can they can lose their access mm-hmm. over time to their higher dimension if they if they don't return to it if they don't keep up on it. And so I was thinking, what if at some point in history, a group of them came here and got stuck here for whatever reason, maybe, yeah. maybe some technology malfunctioned. Well, so now, so now they're relatively human like us, you know, maybe they got a little bit more psychic powers. Um, maybe they still got some of their technology, but they sure got a lot of knowledge. They sure got a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so now they can't fly around in ships anymore, but they can build ships. They can, they can track astronomy to keep track of the disaster cycles and prepare for it. They can build underground cities with their, with their stone shaping ray guns or whatever and so yeah it's possible it's it's possible that there's a group it popped out of nowhere because literally they did pop out of nowhere they could have come from a higher dimension come here and then you know entered our history so now it's possible that you guys yourselves could be carrying some of their genetics because you know they entered into human history and they contributed their their genetics to it and so um some people nowadays could be their descendants but you don't know i mean who is it who was it during the Middle Ages that uh, were burned as witches for having psychic powers? Like, what was their bloodline? What if their bloodline traces back to these ancient ET progenitors, and and we don't even know it? You know, what if what if an alien, an enemy alien faction was trying to wipe them out, and they did it under the guise of the witch hunts and the Inquisition and genocides? You know, all, all these all these things are possible, and it all goes to show that what we know of history, like as I mentioned earlier, is just the surface level, and there's so much going on beneath that. Mm. You know. You know, and that's why I mentioned in my video, I mentioned the concept of hyper history, because what hyper history is, is like, it's like, it's like in a science fiction movie that involves time travel. A lot of times, you know, things go horribly wrong. And at the very end of it, they reset the timeline and now everything's fine again. Right. So, so everything that happened during the movie, whether it's Donnie Darko or that show dark, which is really awesome. They, they both involve resetting the timeline and making things go back to how they originally were. And the thing is, once it's reset, everyone in that timeline remembers that everything was fine, that all that other stuff didn't happen. So what they remember is history. They remember history saying, hey, everything was fine. Nothing weird happened. Everything's just, you know, as it always was. But hyper history is what you watched in the movie. You watched how the time travelers, you know, went different time loops and did this and that. And they, you know, they battled back and forth in order to eventually reset the timeline. So that's what hyper history is. It's all the history that happens outside of linear time, which we right now as historians or looking at archaeological record, we only see the final iteration of uh, a time war. You know, we only see the final loop. 
and that that's what we consider history. But what about all the other prior loops and how do they play into what happened here? And that's what hyperhistory is. And so the thing is, how do you how do you even investigate hyperhistory? Well, the way you do that is you do that through well, primarily through mythology. And the reason why mythology is so important is because mythology is to the collective of humanity what dreams are to us individually. Okay, so they're like collective dreams in a way. And as you know, with dreams, dreams can give us information not only about what's going on with us subconsciously, but also what could be going on in the future and, and maybe even your past lives and even, therefore, hyperhistory. So consciousness is a gateway to everything that's outside of linear time, outside of 3D space. And mythology is a product of consciousness. You know, it's, it's things working through consciousness that ends up creating mythology. And, and so mythology contains a lot of clues about what could have happened outside of linear time that we don't have access to strictly through archaeology or, you know, or science and, and things like that. So um, some of my book, uh, my latest book, which is called, uh, it's called Gnosis. And it's about the concept of the, what the Greeks call the Demiurge. Uh, it's about the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail. Um, the Philosopher's Stone, mm. and it's 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 my attempt to dig into all these fields, including mythology, to try to decipher the hyperhistory of humanity, the hyperhistory of what actually went on, and I think I got pretty far with it. It's a it's a pretty mind blowing book. A lot of people love it, um, but I have I have a, a summary of it on my website in my Gnosis section. If you go to the menu and click on Gnosis. I've got like a really good summary of what's in the book. So, you know, you don't even have to buy the book to, to get the full story. I made, I made sure to put the summary out there so everyone can, can get the idea. But yeah, if anyone is interested in the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail and hyperhistory and alien stuff, and it, it even ties into like the spiritual agendas, like um, the war between light and darkness. You know, what is mm -hmm. Christ consciousness? How, how, do, how does the Holy Spirit and Christ figure into human history? as well mm -hmm. you know and i'm not talking strictly from a biblical perspective but from a, a more general metaphysical spiritual occult perspective like how does that tie into it all uh, and so i give a i give a pretty comprehensive hypothesis in this book that tries to tie it all together uh and i think and i think it does it more elegantly than most things that i've read up to this point but uh anyway summary is on my website so if anyone wants to check it out is there can, uh can, can you give us a little hot sauce on the, the holy grail Oh yeah, of course. Oh yeah, please some more hot sauce for us. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so here, here's the interesting thing: um, the Holy Grail appears in history um, right around the, the same time frame that the Ark of the Covenant disappears from history. Mm. You know, and and the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what was it? Right? People people understand it as okay. It was this golden. It was like a wooden box covered in gold with this golden lid on it. And it's got these two winged figures on top and, you know, carrying poles. And that's what people think. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. Well, that's not the important thing. The important thing is what was in the Ark of the Covenant, like what was in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you trust the accounts, if you, if you trust the accounts of the Old Testament, there were three things that were in there. Well, possibly four. You had the two tablets, the two stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. You had um, <clears throat> like a bowl of manna, uh, manna, magical. It's almost like ectoplasm powder that you can eat. That's that's what it is. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. And, and, and as and as manna, and, yeah, and and this, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ambrosia, uh, so, soma. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. You had that, and uh, you had the what do you call it, the the rod or staff of Aaron, which is like a magical rod, which might which mm. might tie into the Vajra stuff. You know, we we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those three things were supposedly in there. And 
Okay, the bowl of powder, that's interesting. Um, the rod, that's pretty interesting. And then the two tablets, if you, if you look at the origins, of how did those two tablets get in there? Well, the story is that Moses went up into, not onto, not onto, but into Mount Sinai and spent a number, number of days there. And while he was in there, this mountain was quaking and it was emitting glowing light and smoke and emitting trumpet sounds. Uh, it was, it was doing some crazy stuff. And, uh, there, there's some really smart researchers who figured out that Mount Sinai wasn't what we think of as Mount Sinai at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula right now. No, it was actually the Great Pyramid. It was actually the Great Pyramid. Because in the Bible, you know, it gives many clues about it. It talks about the three different mountains. It talks about how they're very sharply peaked. And it talks about how they were small enough that you could take your your soldiers and create like a defensive perimeter around one of them. You know, you could, you could make a circle, a defensive circle around one of them. And you can't do that with a real Mount Sinai. It's just too large. You know, you can't build a, yeah. a circle around it. But, and th that's one weird thing. And the other weird thing is that not once in the Bible is any of the pyramids ever mentioned by name like that. Okay. It's, it's never mentioned in there. And that's the exact region where the Israelites, the Hebrews, where they were stationed in Northern Egypt. So how is it that you can have this entire Bible story and not ever once mention the Great Pyramid? Well, if the Great Pyramid was Mount Sinai, it makes mm -hmm. perfect sense because the Great mm -hmm. Pyramid is something you can go up into, you know, and, and we know that the Great Pyramid was a machine of some sorts that used sound waves, it used scalar stuff, it used uh, plasma, most likely, water. It used a combination of these things um, to create vibrations and to, to do some crazy stuff with. And so when it was in full operation, it would do exactly what the Old Testament describes about Mount Sinai when Moses went into it, right? And when he came out, he brought with him two stone tablets. Okay. Now, were they literally tablets with words carved on them? Maybe, maybe not. They could have been no different from a phone, you know? They could have been... Um, it could have been most likely, I think, in my opinion, it was a, a crystal, a, it was it was a set of crystal objects mm -hmm. that were imbued with an immense, an immense etheric energy field, uh, you know, probably programmed in a certain way. And so when you have these crystal objects, they're able to not only emit a strong glowing etheric energy field, which in the Bible is called the, the Shekinah or the Shekinah, depending on how you pronounce it. But what that was, um, they called it the glory of God or, or the bride of Yahweh. The, but what it was, it was like the astral or etheric body of this object. And so when they put this object into the Ark of the Covenant and they sealed it, this energy field would manifest on top. And that's what they would speak to when they were speaking to the Lord of Israel, whatever the Lord mm -hmm. of Israel actually was. I mean, in my opinion, I think the Lord of Israel was... Um, a thought form, a programmed thought form that was empowered by this extremely strong etheric energy field of this object. And I suspect that when whoever Moses actually was, when he went into the Great Pyramid, what was he doing there all those days? I think what he was doing is he was doing certain magical rituals and like getting getting the pyramid back online in order to most likely charge or program or both this, you know, the set of stone tablets that he took out of there. And the thing about the Ark of the Covenant, amongst all its different magical properties, is that it could manifest food. You know, so every every seven days, well, I mean, actually every day except for the Sabbath, every day except for the Sabbath, you know, when Israelites were wandering in the desert, manna, this white powder, would rain from the sky, and they would scoop it up and they would eat it, and they they said it tasted like a like a like sweet bread, essentially, you know, like honey or wafers, something like that. They would eat that, and also quail for meat for protein. Quail would just manifest. And they would just gather up all the quail and eat them. So they they ate that, and they and they ate the manna for 
for a long time. And the weird thing about manna is they're eating it and it was so efficient at keeping them alive and being turned into whatever the body needed that they stopped having to go to the bathroom. They stopped, you know, they didn't have to do that anymore and they got freaked out by it. So in the Bible, they were actually complaining to their priests that this is weird. This is freaking us out that we're eating all the stuff when we not once, you know, have to take a crap or anything. Mm-hmm. So it mentions that it mentions that in there, and that is what you would expect of a, a very pure etheric, you know, ectoplasm type food. You know, it doesn't have like like a like ash and fiber and you know all these other things that get get passed out. So there's a lot of weird stuff about it. Um, so you so getting back to the Holy Grail. Uh, eventually, you know, the story goes that the Ark of the Covenant was well, the, the temple, the Temple of Solomon was sacked. And after that, the the Ark of the Covenant disappeared from history. And so when they rebuilt the temple right around in the 600 BCs, when they rebuilt the second temple, they didn't have the original Ark of the Covenant anymore in it. So it didn't have um, the glowing energy field. It didn't have any of the magic. So it was strictly a, a symbolic, ritualistic, you know, uh, effigy, effigy of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was during that time that in Persia and in Greece, we start getting reports of magical artifacts. You know, in Greece, they would call mm-hmm. it the the omphalos, the, the navel of the world, the you know the navel stones. And and in Persia, that's where you first started getting um, the earliest uh, Grail Knight stories. You know, p- people don't know that. They, we think of the Grail Knights. We think of King Arthur uh, during the 580s, uh, and later on, um, the Western Western France is where a lot of the actual Grail stories kind of kind of picked up. But even before then, in Iran, in Persia, the Persians they had their own grail knights, you know, centuries before that. And so I think, I think it went from whatever, from the middle East, eventually ended up in Greece, possibly Persia. And then, um, by the time you get to about 500, 800 AD, that's when it shows up in Europe. And so by the time you get to like the, the actual authors of the grail stories, that's right around, uh, 1100, 1200, 1300 AD. And, uh, <clears throat> that was like the end of the grail legacy. So that was already the, the end of it. That's, that's when events had already happened. And now they're just kind of telling the tale with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing about the grail stone is that the grail stone amongst all the things that it could do, well, first of all, it could levitate itself. You know, it was like anti-gravitational and it had to be carried by uh, a chaste virgin, according to the legends. Okay. Like it would only allow a chaste virgin to, to move it, which is interesting because in the, uh, in the Jewish legends, the Ark Covenant, likewise, would levitate. So the priests that were carrying it, they were actually off the ground. Their feet were off the ground, and they were just kind of floating over the ground. Um, it's, not, it's not in the Old Testament. It's in the, um, whatever the name is, of that that parallel thing, that um, like Jewish oral history. It's this parallel set of... Septuagint? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I think that's what it is. Um, yeah, so that's in there. And, and the Levite priests who were in charge of the Ark of the Covenant, they had to purify themselves extremely. They had to be of a certain mindset, certain level of spiritual purity, and probably certain genetic stock as well, in order to be able to get close to the Ark and operate it uh, and not be fried by it. You know, Moses, I think, was 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 a, a Levite himself. So there's certain bloodlines, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's certain bloodlines that um, can operate the Ark of the Covenant, whereas other people, if they tried to do it, as, as I mentioned in the Bible, they um, they get fried, they get electrocuted, they experience like radiation burn syndromes, uh, syndromes, things like that. Um, and so what is it about that bloodline? I, sus- I suspect the bloodline probably traces back to um, early alien presences on Earth, you know, probably like five, 10, even 30,000 years beforehand. 
um, that left mm. their genetic legacy. So some of those some of those bloodlines turn into these Levite priests who are then able to operate alien technology without getting fried. You know, that's just what it is. Um, and the same thing then with the Grail Knights as well. You know, the, the Grail Knights, they they were of a certain spiritual purity, a uh, certain set of bloodlines, you know, the Grail bloodline. And they're able to deal with the Grail and operate it. And for example, uh, according to the Grail legends, you could hold your plate out before this Grail stone and think of whatever you wanted to eat as long as it, as it existed for real. And it would show up on your plate. It would materialize. So they're able to use thoughts and manifestation uh, intentions to manifest things mm. from the etheric down into the physical, right? So that's pretty similar to manifesting mana and quail um, to feed your to feed your your tribe, right? Mm -hmm. So what I think happened most likely is is that those two tablets that came out of the Great Pyramid at some point either one of them got lost or it got shattered and reshaped or whatever, but one of them ended up as the Grail Stone, and you know so by, so by the time you get into eight hundred you know one thousand B or AD. Uh, all you have is a fragment of that left that's, you know, it still has powers, but it isn't what it was once was. And who knows where the other fragments were? I mean, it's possible we could have had multiple Holy Grails. And that's possible too. Um, but it's interesting that if you think about it, the role that Israel had played in ancient history in terms of reshaping the, the genetic and political landscape of the Middle East, it was all due to the Ark of the Covenant. It was due to the power, the weapon, the the military power of the Ark of the Covenant to lay waste to armies ahead of you, to to, to clear the land, to to you know manifest food in the desert, so you don't have to supply military logistics in terms of food and you know everything like that. It allowed them to to conquer a large part of the Middle East uh, during that time. Um, oh, just as a point of trivia, when when Bible scholars talk about the Temple of Solomon and these events. They say that it happened, you know, right around, well, 1300, 1200, 1000 BC. But in my research, that's not true. In my research, the Temple of Solomon actually occurred, it was actually built right around 1500 BC. So that's like 400, 500 years earlier from what the Bible scholars think. And I think what happened was the original Israelites, they were actually, they were actually what, what we know of as the Phoenicians and the Hyksos. Hyksos empire that mm -hmm. that took over Egypt for a period of time during um actually they, they took over right around the time that uh, the that volcano in the Mediterranean on the island of uh Vesuvius, mm, Vesuvius? I think well well I mean I, I know it's called like like, like Terra the T H E R A volcano the Terra volcano mm -hmm. um it, it was on the on the Minoan island it blew up in 16 1628 yeah. BC and they know it's 1628 based on archaeology and on tree rings that recorded this event. Mm. But it created a huge disaster. It created a tsunami in Egypt, you know, smoke like blanketed the sky. It was like, it was like chaos. It was like hell on earth. And, you know, because the Egyptian government was, was decimated for a period of time, all the people that had a grudge against them, which was the Hebrews, the Semitic people in the northern part of Egypt, uh, they rose up and they became the dominant power for about a hundred years until the Egyptian generals kind of you know, kicked them out of there again. But anyway, so when they left, they settled back in their original homeland, which was the, the Middle East, which nowadays would be Lebanon, like like where the Temple of Baalbek is. Mm -hmm. So the Temple of Baalbek, Lebanon, that region, and to the west of that, you know, near, near the water is where the Phoenicians were. The Phoenicians oh, yeah. and Hyksos were, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they were, they were, um, the Phoenicians and the Hyksos, they were like brothers, basically. They were their cousins, you know. Yep. So so when so, so when the Hyksos came back, they just settled next, next to their, their relatives, uh, a little bit to the east. And um, 
And they're the ones with Phoenician help who built the Temple of Solomon. And according to the Bible, they also built a sister complex out in the desert, which nowadays we only see remnants of, and that's the Temple at Baalbek, which has those huge megalithic stones. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's where the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple of Solomon ended up right around 1500 BC. And then um, not too long after that, I think about 50 years, Hatshepsut, her, her, she was she was a queen of Egypt at the time. She was a, the first female pharaoh, I think. Her, uh, was her cousin, I think, or her little brother. Well, anyway, she had a co-regent who was jealous of her connections to these these Hyksos people, these traders. And so after she died, he took power and he went up there and he reconquered the area, and he smashed that temple to bits. He like totally demolished it. And so that's where the Ark of the Covenant originally disappeared from from Israelite hands. Right, so they came back to Egypt, as far as I can tell, and then a couple of centuries later, uh, well, not too long after that, Akhenaten, you know, Pharaoh Akhenaten, he's he's pretty famous. He was a uh, he, he was the first pharaoh of um, Egypt who who was into monotheism because before that, you know, the Egyptians worshipped all these different gods. Well, Akhenaten, he's this weird guy. He had like an elongated skull for starters, which means that he was tied to these these he was, he was tied to a weird bloodline, and he was into monotheism. He was into sun worship. And all this stuff was foreign to Egypt. So he was he was like a genetic product of foreign bloodlines and a foreign religion. And he took over Egypt for a while. And uh, when he died, his followers, his followers took his legacy and tried to take over Egypt again. But they also were kicked out of Egypt in the same way that the Hyksos were a couple centuries earlier. And they also settled in the Middle East. And so they so the the followers of Akhenaten and the Hyksos people a couple centuries earlier they were the original progenitors of what eventually nowadays we know as the Israelites. Right. And unfortunately, um, right around 800 or 700 BC, their descendants were decimated by the Assyrians and they were scattered to the winds. And so if you look at Bible record, those were the 10 Northern tribes of Israel the 10 Northern tribes of Israel were decimated and they kind of disappeared from history. So they, you know, some of them went off to Ireland. And so we get the, the higher, how you pronounce it, the Tuatha de Danan people in Ireland. They came there around 1500 BC. They came, they said that they came from several cities that they had magical powers and they were, you know, they were a maritime culture. Um, so they settled there and they brought their, their megalithic knowledge with them, which is how we get a lot of these uh, interesting structures in Ireland during that time. Um, others seem to have gone uh, east to India and that plays into the myths of the Aryan invasion. And actually, people don't a lot of people don't know this, but the ancient Indian kings, according to Hindu mythology, the most ancient Vedic kings matches up name by name with the ancient Sumerian king list, which was preserved, mm. which was preserved in the Middle East um, up until the Assyrian decimation of the ten northern tribes of Israel. Right. Mm. So it's, it's almost like people from the Middle East took their history, brought it east. And that then got merged with the local culture, became um, ancient Vedic history. And so mm -hmm. now we think of that, you know, Vedic history and Sumerian and like uh, Hebrew history has nothing to do with each other, but, they, you know, they overlap if you go back far enough in time. Um, so like I said, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And uh, some of the technology yeah. eventually got lost to history, but then it resurfaced. And so the Holy Grail, I think, was one of those. Definitely, mm -hmm. for sure. Nice. Yeah, just uh, switch the R and Aryan to an L. And you got aliens. <laughs> um, yeah, it, even, it even talks about uh, how they, they thought the Tuatha de Danan were aliens uh, because, because they came from a different land. And they're also like the ancient sea mariners that you were talking about too. 
And uh, if you go into like Egypt, the, they are the people of the Duat. That's where the Tuat comes from, the Duat and the Tuat. And so they, they were uh, they were people that lived underground, but also on the ground. So they had a dual nature also, mm-hmm. just like the the Tuat that they demand were like in that in metaphysical realm. So, yeah, yeah, the Tuatha, yeah, the Tuatha were they were um, almost like a like a hybrid humanoid species in a way. Because they're part alien and part human. Because the thing is, like uh, near the end of their history, after they've had enough of you know being battered by their enemies, they went underground to join the the she. Well, it's spelled S I D D H E, but mm-hmm. they you pronounce it she. And the she were like like it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, the elves. You know, they're like mythical, ethereal, uh, immortal beings. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so the Tuatha went underground to join their civilization. Which is interesting, which is interesting, because if you go back, if you go back in, in like a World War II, for example, where did the Nazis go? Some people think they went to Antarctica and joined mm-hmm. the underground civilization mm-hmm. there. So we, we get this this repeating theme, right, of advanced humanoids who get 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 tired of people's shit, and then they, and they go underground and join the alien compadres. Yeah, my, my friend Andy Rouse, he says that uh, the, the Picts joined the She, and that was the Pixie. Mm, interesting. And the fairy dust, the Pixie dust. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, well, you know the pics, right? They were they were called pics because that was a Latin term for for colored picture, like tattoos. They, they were tattooed people. Yeah, they're and tattooed, yeah, yeah. So so they were tattooed, and we find tattoos a lot in in other cultures, uh, especially like on uh, Easter Island. You know, a lot of the the yep. Hawaii statues, they they got tattoos all over them that mm-hmm. match a lot of the depictions of of the the pics as well. And so the pics, I'm pretty sure, were part of a maritime culture that settled in Ireland, Scotland. That whole, you know, England, that that whole that whole area for sure. Ironically, yeah. the the same eagle-looking bird thing that's on uh, Gobleki Tepe tea pillars is also on the back of the Moai on uh, the island. Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. definitely a connection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some blocks on some of the megalithic structures in Central America. It's like a it's like a, almost like like an animal hide, like an H shape, and you find that also on the belt buckle. The belt of the some of the uh, Quebec yep. Tepe things, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, so there's common iconography between these cultures that are supposedly have nothing to do with each other. I mean, Easter Island is down the middle of the Pacific, like thousands and thousands of miles away, <laughs> but but it's it's within a trade route. It's within like the ocean and, and air currents that mm-hmm. um that would that would take you around the world. So, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, Graham Hancock and a lot of others have talked about this ancient maritime culture that existed before and after the Ice Age and. I suspect that their descendants are fully aware of who they are. And some of those descendants who form secret societies are fully aware of who they are and what their agenda is. And they have written themselves out of the history books in order to cover their tracks. Yeah. Like you were mentioning Solomon, uh, the, the story with Solomon is he had a magical ring and uh, demons helped him build it. Right. But a uh, demon is another way, uh, name for the Twatha day, the Nan, they called them the day men or the daemons, and so they probably, and then they're the uh, builders of all of, of like these ancient sites. So did they help Solomon build the temple, you know? And the daemon uh, helped the bringer of light, right? There's a, the dichotomy yeah. of Lucifer and the light bearer and these his demons and the daemons, the light bearers, just just working, you know, working with uh, some, some higher echelons of ancient knowledge. Right. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. You know the term uh, daemon or daemon, if you pronounce it that way, D-A-E. Um, in some historical context, it actually lines up with uh, the 
the Middle East concept of um, the jinn, you know, essentially like mm-hmm. being like the like like the jinn, you know, these ethereal humanoid beings that have magical powers and advanced technology. Mm-hmm. And nowadays we might call them, oh, they're just Pleiadians or Nordigalians. But back then, you know, they were <laughs> they were known under a different name. But you know, it's the same mm-hmm. thing, different different name. For sure. I want to get more into this alien stuff and whatnot. And you know, uh, a lot of people think space is fake and gay, but we're gay <laughs> pride around here. So, like, what, what, what is the universe and what is time? Because to me, I I believe space is real. I don't think it's some fake imaginary thing. I think NASA's fake as fuck, but I don't think space is fake. Uh, so. Tell us a little bit about like what is the universe? How is it connected? And what is what is time even? Mm. How do how can we even time travel? What is time traveling or going through portals? What is how does all that connect? Wrap yeah. it up in well, thirty you know, seconds too. Yeah, thirty seconds, right? <laughs> 42, 42, <laughs> right. <clears throat> no, um, I know that's a big one. That's a big question, but no, it's good. It's cool. It's a big question for everybody. You know, everybody's yeah. always like what is the universe and what is time? Mm-hmm. Uh, because like in today's society, it gets like so such a bad rap, you know, now and like space isn't even real anymore. It's like, what the fuck? Next, they're going to take away dinosaurs. Oh, too late. Yeah, well, people question this stuff because I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it, there are flaws that need to be looked into. You know, there are anomalies mm-hmm. and glitches mm-hmm. that need to be, mm-hmm. need to be explained. Um, but, if, but if you want to boil it down to fundamentals, I think a good, I think a good metaphor would be Okay, so first of all, we know that consciousness is real because that's yeah. the only that's that's the only thing you know in in um, solipsism that you can prove. You, you can prove to yourself that you exist just by being aware of your own of your, of your own awareness, right? So we know consciousness yeah. is real, and um, a lot of a lot of quantum physicists have been shifting over the decades to believing that consciousness is the primary thing and that matter is secondary. And so, and so if consciousness is the real thing and matter is secondary, how is, how is then the universe any different from a dream? Cause that's what a dream is. You know, it's a simulation run within consciousness. And the thing is, well, it's just like in, um, it's just like in the matrix movie where, where, uh, Morpheus was like, if you, if you ever had a dream that was so real that you couldn't distinguish it from reality, you know, if it were that real, if you never woke up, how would you know that it was, you know, that it was, wasn't even reality. <laughs> um, so I think consciousness is primary, but the thing is, it's kind of like video games in that if you're, if you're in a video game and you're not the the coder or the moderator or anything like that, you have to play by the video game rules. Like the program rules is what you have to play by. So games have internal physics, right? They got internal rules, internal physics. There's walls you can't go through, but it's all simulated. It's not even real, you know, but yet there are limits. There's functional limits. And so I think our universe is similar in that. Yes. Yes. You know, it is a projection of consciousness ultimately, but when you're within it, if you don't have the root access permission to alter it at a, at a godlike god mode level, then you're going to have to play by its rules. And so the study and the application of its rules, that's what physics is. That's what science is. That's what scalar physics is. You know, So time travel has to operate by those rules within the fiction of the collective dream, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so the, the crux kind of comes down to what is the border? What is the, the border between physics that you can't change that you have to abide by and consciousness which can violate or bend the rules you know and and it seems to me that aliens and um certain metaphysical occult beings they're kind of straddling that line you know they they have 
access that we don't have. They can bend the rules that we can't bend. But at the same time, they're also operating by certain rules mm-hmm. that still apply that still apply to them. Whereas I'm sure if you were the infinite creator, you could do anything you wanted, right? Because you're you're the you're the you're the you're, I mean you're literally it is God mode. You are God, right? The high wizard. But, yes, yes. But if if you're beneath that, if you're beneath that, you're gonna have less and less and less access until here we are, where you know we got to buckle our seatbelts and pay car insurance and health insurance because <laughs> we're 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 subject to to you know the laws of biology and and physics. Mm. So I think. So I think that the universe is a construct of consciousness, um, but but setting that aside, it has its own internal physics, right? So if you want to discuss like, okay, well, how does how does that physics work? Then is, is space real? Well, what do we mean by real? Real means that if you were to get into a spaceship right now, and if you were to go in outer space, would you see stars? Would you see planets? You know, would you be able to travel from one planet to another? Or is it like in... Um, like like in Thirteenth Floor or uh, the Truman Show, where you eventually encounter some sort of a border, and beyond that, you know, that's the end of the simulation. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, right, right, and there, there's no way for us really to verify. All we have is anecdotes and some clues that um, things aren't what they seem. Like you know, I've I've come across several sources, uh, independent sources, that mention how if you go into outer space. You don't see stars anymore. You don't see planets anymore. You see almost like like white noise mm-hmm. static. I've I've seen different sources mention that. You know, some sort of like like a like a nebulous. Uh, it's it's almost like in quantum physics. See, in quantum physics, everything is vibration. Everything is a wave pattern. Everything is a wave function. And when you observe it or when you measure it, you lock into one of those particular slices of the wave function, which is one probable timeline. And what's, that's when things become five sense reality become yeah, real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So it's it's almost like um because because like right now we got radio waves around us, right? You can't if you want to listen to a radio station, you have to have you have to tune into one frequency, one set of frequencies to be able to hear that station. And if your tuner is screwed up and it's picking up everything, you're just gonna get white noise on a radio. You're just gonna get like a jumble of everything going on. And so one thing, Roman, that that we discussed in um the show with Kaylee about the moon is the idea that what if the gravitational field or maybe even the magnetic field of planets acts as a radio tuner to kind of kind of assemble reality for us all here on this planet. And so when you leave the planet and you leave that assembly field, now you're back in this white noise spectrum where reality isn't assembled yet and you can't even see anything, you know, and you have to navigate by some sort of a psychic or uh, weird quantum phase computer, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to call it thing in order to actually get to, let's say Mars. And as you approach Mars within this, this hyperdimensional white noise Hilbert space field, as they would call it in, in physics, that's when it starts assembling back into a planet. And now you can actually land and see, you know, red salmon colored dirt on Mars, you know, but, but in between, if you're not, if you're not in that field, what if there's just noise in between? So that's a possibility. I can't verify it. I'm just saying that there's some anecdotes some clues <laughs> that, that kind of point to it, but we can't say for sure. Um, so I think, I think space is real and in a functional sense. I don't, I don't think we're, so here's the thing. If we're living in a simulation, there's no reason why the simulation has to end at, let's say, the Van Allen belts or, you know, just beyond the border of the moon. Mm-hmm. Why why doesn't the simulation include the entire universe? You know, so so, yeah, you can travel from Earth to Alpha Centauri on, on, a, on a faster than light spacecraft and you can do that. But it's all happening within the simulation. That's not a big deal. Right. Um, 
And so people who try to figure out or try to theorize about what are aliens really? What if they're not aliens? What if they're interdimensionals? Or what if they are figments of the simulation? Or what if they are people outside the simulation that come into it here? You know, so we think they're aliens, but no, they're just humans. Like, what if it's really the year 3000 and we're in a simulation and they're the people outside the simulation? Well, mm-hmm. if we're in a simulation, as, as I mentioned, shit. <laughs> Avatar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think like if you expand the parameters of the simulation to encapsulate, let's say 10,000 years of time and 10,000 light years of space, it's not that big of a deal to do that, right? You could have people from outside the simulation who came here, let's say 8,000 years ago set themselves up in Alpha Centauri and had a civilization there within the simulation. And then eventually they came to Earth and they tweaked our genetics and became part of our bloodline. All that can happen. And you, you, we could still be in a simulation. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. And so that's why I say that mm. aliens can be aliens, even if in the end it ends up being a whole simulation theory or interdimensional or whatever. Like you can have all these things, all these theories in parallel, you know, that they're not mutually exclusive. And I don't think you should limit it to just, you know, oh, we can't go beyond Earth because of Van Allen radiation belts, so therefore the entire universe is fake. Like, I think that's, like, flawed logic, because I think a, I think a simulation can include the entire thing, and there's no really no limits to to where we can go if we just have the physical means of doing it. Mm-hmm. I kind of got the visual of uh, a couple different visuals when, you, when we were talking about that, but, like, a big sheet of cookie dough. And within that, you know, the area of the cookie dough, you have the shape of the cookie cutter itself that goes and hits that shape. But outside of the cookie cutter is all the extra dough. And no matter how many uh, cookies you cut out of that dough, there's there's still like a slight remnants on the outside, the frayed edge. And it's like within that frame of consciousness is a heightened you know, area of matter and like whether or not it's like created by an outside force or something, there's still all that, that space in between those, those cookies that are cut and uh, the gooey goodness, you know, and it's (laughs) interesting, you know, thinking about like how we might be able to potentially navigate through this, you know, space texture, um, you know, by, I think it would have to be by having, specific navigation points you know not just having an amount of gas in your car and thrusters and just hoping that you get there because you know where the road goes the road ends because of what stories we do have from astronauts um you know dating back from the 70s to now when they get in a panel after you know the the allotted panel that they're allowed to answer questions to the press they've gotten asked if they see stars or not right and they, we've had contradicting answers we've had astronauts tell us that they can't see stars in space and we've had other astronauts tell us that they can so there's that automatic contradiction and so it's really interesting to think about space being a white noise outside of that veil you know it's it's really interesting actually to think about that because you know, with these different contradictory stories with astronauts that may or may not be going to space. What if it is just white noise outside of the bubble? Like that is, that's a mind blow right there for me. Yeah. Yeah. So then the question is like, you know, when you, when we send space probes up there, what are we seeing really? Like, yeah. Like, like this probe probes on Mars, for example. I mean, see, it doesn't help. It doesn't help that NASA is driven by political agendas and secret right. society agendas totally. there's a lot of freemasonic there's a lot of freemasonic crap associated with it and um you know some people think that mars photos are really you know shot on devon island or th- things things like that like they're shot on earth yeah, <laughs> i mean yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, it's yeah, I, yeah, right. So, so it's that kind of muddies the water. So, I mean, we're trying to figure out what reality much. is, and then here you got these stupid people, you know, faking stuff on Earth. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> you know, we just found out. We just did a Kaylee and I recorded yesterday, and we talked about the new moon launch, the Artemis One, and it was just full of just so much ridiculous ridiculous details you know they they shot up uh two different mannequins in the artemis one that are not you know they're just they're just mannequins and they're in there they gave them names they gave them a backstory to these mannequins and they play they're playing a big significant role in history right now which is interesting because it, it literally is almost like a type of like uh you know ancient source of like occulted magic when you uh, or, or spells like when you are to have a mannequin, a life, uh, you know, just a, a clay body, and then you animate it and give it life, give it a name, give it a backstory, give it an archetype to follow. Uh, it's just interesting that these these characters are, you know, the 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 people that run NASA. But you know, you talk about it having Freemasonic roots, and it does. And uh, some of our friends have done like big deep dives on the Jack Parsons connection to Crowley and L. Ron Hubbard, and and you know all all that stuff there. So, but one of the interesting ties that we found while digging up the Artemis One story uh, that they gave us, uh, there's still Parsons in. Uh, there's Parsons bloodline still in NASA. So Jack Parsons, who started JPL, who was, you know, a Thelemite and like direct funder and associate with Aleister Crowley as, you know, started JPL, but he still has family that's in there. So like, to me, that's a magical bloodline. Like Jack Parsons created himself, cut himself a piece of that pie in the high occult echelon. And now his family is still a part of NASA. This it's the same people running it. So the, the, it is absolute muddied water and the intentions behind it are, I'm not going to necessarily say that they're ill intent, you know, because I don't know what this higher agenda is, but it is in fact ran by a higher echelon of families and and information that's staying in a specific vault that we are not getting access to and the shit that we're getting fed is 100 percent mumbo a jumbo yeah yeah right <laughs> i mean well, the thing about like as you know about parsons and crowley is that they're trying to break through the the veil to contact intelligences on the other side right you know they're trying to bring the it's almost like a lovecraftian cthulhu horror stuff into this realm <laughs> and you know, they're, they're trying to they're trying to bring it here and so they're the ones who are consorting with probably literal demons and getting influenced by them um and funny enough uh, the nazis were kind of doing similarly with the the real the real mm -hmm. women contacting the the aldebaran aliens and getting technological schematics from them and and so on so that's a kind of repeating pattern of of the the, the power hungry elites here consorting with higher beings to get favors technology uh, occult powers and stuff to help them achieve their agenda here. It's, it's an it's a repeating pattern over and over. So I'm sure that that thing is still active, and I'm sure it ties into, oh man, so, so much of the the human trafficking and organ mm -hmm. harvesting stuff that, that's going on, right? That the occultism, you know, the spirit cooking, and uh, you know that that whole crowd. Like if you look at like John Podesta, Hillary Clinton, um, Rockefellers, they're all they're all like in the same bed, perhaps literally, right? So <laughs> I mean, they're all like. <laughs> Consorting with each other, and and all of them have a fascination with all, all of them have a fascination with occultism and with UFOs and ETs, and they've been trying to do their part to bring about disclosure, but for their own benefit, you know, to do on a mass scale 
what Jackson or sorry, what um, Parsons and Crowley were trying to do, you know, just themselves and and their their occult partners back then. I think they're trying to continue that legacy, but um, bring about a, an occult disclosure that brings in beings from another realm. You know, so that's that's one faction. And we also have to look back at NASA at the Werner von Braun and some of these Nazis that were brought over during Paperclip. Um, they weren't the same faction as the Parsons, Crowley, uh, L. Ron Hubbard crowd. You know, mm-hmm. so we, we have like we have like multiple origin points and possibly therefore multiple different factions and agendas um, that are probably still in play. And that could very well be driving a lot of the political stuff nowadays, like Trump, uh, Elon Musk on one side. And you've got the whole Clinton-Obama crowd on the other side. It's like, it's like different bloodlines, different factions, right? Different agendas. And that's kind of like driving the, the the cave wall shadows that we're seeing in the news right now. If you click on the news and all the people that are being brainwashed by it, right? They're just being brainwashed by shadows. So we always we always have to look behind that at what the uh, historical origins are and you know what some of the deeper secret agendas might be. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. um, actually, you know what you yes. asked about time, you asked about time travel and I think maybe you might've mentioned gravity, even like gravity and time travel. See, so gravity and time travel, they're, they're intimately linked. Like if, if you look at just, um, hmm. Einstein's relativity and th- there's debate about whether Einstein was an agent of the agenda and, mm-hmm. you know, whether, whether relativity is even real. Well, the thing is, the thing about relativity is that, um, the interpretation might be false, but a lot of the math is real. Okay. And so when relativity talks about black holes and um, Einstein Rosen bridges between parallel universes, I think that's legitimate. Um, it's just that their explanation about why it does that, that might be false. But the point is, so, so gravity, right? I mean, what is it that makes a pen fall down? Gravity. But the thing is, it's not so much gravity that we need to be concerned with. It's something called the gravitational potential. So what the gravitational potential is, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like air pressure. If you think about if we're surrounded by ether, like the the, the pure A E T H E R type of ether, it has a certain density and has a certain pressure to it at each point in the universe and each point above the ground. And so, when the ether is like less dense here, a little bit more dense here, a little bit more dense here, what you get is you get a gradient from like you get a, a gradient in the density of the ether, and that's what creates gravity. That's what creates the force of gravity pulling us down earth okay now the interesting thing is that each of these ether pressures whether it's like light here medium here heavy here each one has its own time rate associated with it so if i held up a clock right here the clock here would tick at a different rate than it does right here because the gravitational potential is different here than it is up here and so what this means is that it's possible that you can create a space okay you can create a space like inside of a planet or inside of a black hole where the gravitational potential is uniform across the entire thing. Okay, so the the time distortion is uniform everywhere inside that space. And because it's uniform, there's no gradient in the gravitational potential. And therefore, there's no force. There's no gravitational force. In other words, I could take a pen in the space, let go of it, and it would just float there as if there were no gravity. And yet there is a very intense gravitational potential that alters the time rate. Now, the reason why this is important is because in the UFO abduction field, a lot of times abductees report how the inside of an alien ship is bigger than the outside, right? The outside might look like it's only 50 yards across. You go inside, oh crap, now it's like a 200-yard space. It's like somehow they're able to pack space inside, but not so much outside. And I think the way that they're able to do that is by altering this so-called gravitational potential or etheric energy density 
inside a craft, which, you know, changes the scale of space. It changes the rate of time. And so you go into that space and now time flows at a different rate. Space is at a different scale. And, you know, you know that that can happen. And so the thing is, yeah, go ahead, Dan. What if they're just really good at feng shui? <laughs> yeah, wait, can you, can you repeat that? My, uh, I had an audio malfunction. Uh, what if they're just really good at feng shui and oh. putting stuff <laughs> in the right places to make everything feel more comfortable? Yeah, well, that would be nice. I mean, that would explain the, round, the, the, rounded, the rounded rooms and the, you know, the lack of seams yeah. to anything, or lack yeah. of harsh corners. Well, you know, I think, I think they're aware of that. Uh, honestly, it's a, it's a half joke. Yeah, no, I know, I know. But, but you know, speaking of that, yeah. feng shui, it's a, it's a legit principle for manipulating etheric energies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but, yeah. but, but it does, it uses it just using physical objects. Like what if you knew that you could use electric fields or magnetic mm-hmm. fields in a certain way uh, to, mm-hmm. to do that, to do that times a billion, mm-hmm. right? So, so now it's no longer, oh, it's no longer put a chair here to like make your energies better. It's like, no, turn on this generator and all of a sudden you're like warping reality, you know? That's, like, that's kind of like Wilhelm Reich was getting into, right? With his orgone studies and, and his type yeah. of uh, physics works is like, they were just manipulate the, the etheric energy here and have you step into a complete joyous experience. Yeah. Well, you know, earlier I mentioned how some of these uh, samples of alien crashed ship material, mm-hmm. it's called alternating layers, layers of aluminum and bismuth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what was Wilhelm, what was Wilhelm Reich working with? He's working with orgone accumulators made of alternating layers of metal and some sort of non-metal mm-hmm. that he made a box out of it. You sit it, you sit inside of it and it acts as an etheric energy accumulator. So when you sit in there, you kind of get charged up with this etheric energy and it kind of, um, well, it, it, it it helps dissolve um, etheric blockages in your body. You know, it helps get rid of armor armoring, as he he would call it. Um, yeah. So so you know these clues keep repeating. You know the alternating mm-hmm. layers, etheric energy manipulation, its effects on health and consciousness. Um, yeah, but um, it's like a bad. The reason why I mentioned this idea of yeah 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 exactly yeah, but the reason why I mentioned the whole thing about the gravitational potential and etheric energy density and kind of working with it is that according to relativity, uh, if you alter the gravitational potential, you change the time rate, but if you alter it enough, time goes to zero, like the rate of time Mm -hmm. goes to zero. And that's that condition happens at the boundary of a black hole, right? It happens at the boundary of a black hole. If you go through it, now you're no longer in the old space time that you were in before you're kind of like ejected into, they call it imaginary, imaginary space time or time space. So it's like you're in hyperspace, essentially. Um, the only problem is if you try to do that with a black hole, the closer you get to the black hole, the stronger gra- the gravitational force becomes and you get ripped into literal spaghetti. Like you get like pulled apart like taffy, you know, and of course you're dead. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you can't, you can't use a black hole to do that. But what you can do is you can build a space and make the gravitational potential inside of it uniform so that when you're in there, you don't get any gravitational forces. You're not ripped apart, but the gravitational potential is so low or, you know, so high, depending on how you want to look at it, that time slows to a stop and you mm-hmm. get ejected into hyperspace. And so some of these um, insider rumors about jump rooms, you know, you go into a room and you flip a switch and you get teleported somewhere, you get teleported to Mars or, you know, or they bring abductees into underground military bases through them. I think they're using that technology. I think they're altering the gravitational potential in that room uniformly. So you don't feel anything, you know, you might feel some electrical tingle maybe as you're, you know, phasing into hyperspace, but you don't get ripped apart like a black hole. So they can, they can use black hole physics without the associated gravitational forces 
in order to get ejected into hyperspace. And once you're in hyperspace, you can go pretty much anywhere in space or in time or possibly mm-hmm. even through parallel timelines. So I think I think that's that's where that connection is. I, I think that I'm getting a lot of uh, visuals too to like the the ancient architects that had this higher echelon of knowledge. Like you know this, I think the cathedrals are hyperspace ships, if you will. Like they were mm-hmm. they were created with such such finesse and such um, such fine precision. high art and precision, and then using the different things like because sound. And music can absolutely put you into almost that that energetic uh, atmosphere that we're talking about, about being timeless. Because if if you start to equalize those different energies, like the dissonance is what gives us like the structure and like these layers of time. It's like, oh, I know I'm experiencing these, you know, everything as like normal time that I'm used to because of all these different uh different layers but once you start to equal it out and things start to get equal one with like equalizing your breath and your body and your mind then you start to experience that timelessness then you add in some sort of like some equal vibrations of like a tuning fork or a gong or something that's just what it almost seems like it's doing is it's taking that space that you're in and it's filling it with this it's equalizing it out in the resonance and so the the ancient cathedrals and things, I think, were this type of like scalar technology that, you know, that that we've been talking about here. And um, that I mean, yeah, what 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 is your opinion on this, the ancient architecture that we have and maybe it's lost purpose and function? And do you think it was a piece of like some higher alien technology or just like a higher tapped in echelon of sorts? Yeah, well, all right, so, so the cathedrals, um, the construction that went into the vaulted ceilings and the whole idea behind them, supposedly, from what I read, um, that technology was, see, because, I mean, up to a certain point in time, there were no cathedrals, right? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, they just popped up, they just popped yeah, up all over the place. Exactly, everywhere, and, and they, at once, yeah, all yeah. over the fucking world, too. Yeah, and they only popped up after um, after the archaeological expeditions to the Middle East, where they're digging under the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and going underground there and they found things i don't know if they found blueprints books you know scrolls um or or they they could have found um king solomon's stable like king king solomon had a horse stable which was underground it was underground and it was huge you know it's like um you see it sometimes i forget what what cities in europe it is but if you go underground you see these these giant columns you know like a huge space Mm. right and it's, it's amazing you have this huge space underground held by these columns ever since the Middle Ages, but they did it using that same technology. So I think they discovered that in the Middle East, they learned how it worked, and then they brought it back to Europe, and they started building all these cathedrals. Um, but it wasn't just like how to create really tall-looking structures. It was also the sacred geometry behind it, you know, how it interfaced with sound. Like, when we know that sound is a principle, because if you look at the Rosalind Chapel, you look at the Rosalind Chapel mm-hmm. in, uh, where is it, Scotland, I think? But um, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, yeah. If, if you look, if you look at Roslyn Chapel, right on 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 the ribbed part of the vaulted ceilings, there they got these cubes that are all over the place. These cubes have different design designs on them, and people figured out that the design on the cube itself, on the face of the cube, is what you get with cymatics. You know, when you vibrate a plate with sand on it, you, you kind of vibrate at a certain pitch, and it creates like a standing wave pattern of sand. And those particular patterns they found all over these cubes. So what does that mean? It means that whoever built Roslyn Chapel was aware of sound aware of cymatics standing waves mm-hmm. uh and stone and stone and those four things is what you find in 
the cathedral structures, you know, in terms of the the principles behind their construction. And also, actually, I would add in, in the Great Pyramid as well, because the Great Pyramid, uh, not to get into a whole side tangent on that, it used water, sound, plasma, um, probably the vibrations of the stone, which stones being piezoelectric means that when you when you squeeze them physically, it creates like a voltage like on the surface of the stone. And so when you take the entire pyramid structure and you resonate it, vibrate it, and the stones are vibrating, they're emitting electric longitudinal electric mm-hmm. waves, which are scalar waves. So the Great Pyramid was a scalar wave generator or radiator of some kind, in addition to all of its other functions. And I think some of that that knowledge of that that legacy wound up in the Middle Ages as the cathedrals. So the cathedrals were a continuation of the same Masonic uh, secret knowledge that, you know, went into the Great Pyramids thousands and thousands of years earlier. So it's secret society stuff, you know. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, oh, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's great. I, I wanted to go back a little bit to uh, the time manipulation and time dilation and, and, and the gravity potential. Do you think that's why people are experiencing uh, a, a, a difference in time? Like, you know, they go onto the ship, they experience like four days, mm-hmm. but then they come back and, you know, only two hours have gone by. Is is that gravity potential or that time dilation what's uh, contributing to that experience in a whole? Because even you said like the inside of the ship has some type of potential in it where it seems bigger or whatnot. So it's like almost stopping time down to zero, but it seems like they're experiencing more time on the ship and than what's really happening. So it's like almost yeah, like a, yeah, yeah. If you if you change the gravitational potential one way, then time goes faster, right? And if you change it the other way, then it gets slower. So they can they can do either one, uh, whatever whatever suits them. Uh, and if you think about it, whether it's aliens or uh, black ops, military, and underground bases. If, if they surround their entire base with this time distortion field, they can be in there and advancing, you know, they could be in there for centuries and we only experience decades. So their technology, their progress could, you know, advance by centuries while for us, time's only advanced by decades. And that could also help explain why they are so advanced by this point. You know, it's not just that they had smart geniuses developing technology at a really fast pace. It could be literally that their time rate is different from ours. And so whether it's alien abductees or military abductees, you could take into these underground bases. Yeah, time rate there, I'm, I'm estimating anywhere from three times to maybe 10 times faster than than here. Or yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here, you know, you get abducted, let's say, at uh, four in the morning and you get returned at 630 in the morning. But over there, which was only, you know, that's only two and a half hours over there, it could have been 12 hours. And yeah, yeah. and so so that's why abductees, they remember a lot more happening than their clock back at home. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Uh, sorry, sorry, Roman, to, to cut off uh your uh your topic there did you have no other questions i have uh just just one more question left to finish it off with yeah yeah um yeah i i think yeah we'll we'll start we'll start winding down here i mean we've gone we've gone so so deep and i love it but uh the (laughs) the the whole cathedral conundrum is is fascinating because i think you know obviously looking at history there's ebbs and flows of like this heightened uh you know like heightened society oh we found some new technology let's implement it implement Mm -hmm. it it dips back down through you know some sort of war or you know these different bloodlines like not not being okay with each other but 
what, 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 and whatever, what have you. But I guess if, if there's one final thing that I kind of wanted to, uh, to bring up that we talked about a lot earlier on in the conversation was the, the concept of genetic manipulation that we might have been put through, um, because we are so different than, um, all these other creatures here on the planet. And, uh, you know, talking about simulation as well, if like, you know, there's these different layers of the game and you, your soul goes through these different incarnations and you go through these different animal spirits and so on and so forth. You reach the human level. You're here. You've made it. Yeah. You know, there's that concept, which is it's OK. Um, it seems a little too like a little too, you know, too perfect. But, um, you know, looking at you know, the hieroglyphs of ancient Egypt and the stories of the Vedas and there being these like, you know, um, these gods or these deities that have these different animal heads. And yes, they could be archetypes and they very well may be. But um, I think all of those, in my opinion, are different genetics that we were actually bred with um, to make us who we are and to um, to put us into this this faction of reality that we see. Um, and I, I really want to just, I guess, ask you, what is your f final, uh, well, not final, it's always ever growing and ever changing, mm -hmm. but what is your interpretation of genetic manipulation? And, and do you think, um, do you think it's continuing and what's in maybe the next stage of genetic manipulation that we might find ourselves yeah. in? Yeah, that's an important question because I mean, this is the hardware that we run on, right? <laughs> and if you, if you got limited handicapped hardware, how much can you really express your spiritual potential, you know, if you're handicapped? <laughs> yeah, you know, so, I mean, as far as like genetic manipulation goes, you know, Cro-Magnons had bigger skull volume than we do as Homo sapiens sapiens. So we've, we've been dumbed down by someone at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, we are not what we could be. Um, we're not as smart as we could be. We're not as robust you know, because we're not even as we're not even as muscular or tall as these Cro-Magnons were. So they were. How is it that you have something earlier in history that's more advanced than right now, which you know ties into the themes of uh, technology? How is that Egyptian civilization appeared out of nowhere, was really advanced, and then just kind of declined mm -hmm. over time, losing other technology? That's a repeating thing throughout history. We keep getting, we keep getting manipulated technologically, genetically, you know, uh, culturally, mythologically, religiously by something. And then after it, it leaves its influence, we kind of are left to our own and we just end up kind of declining. Like, like yeah. our, our technology, yeah. Uh, our absolutely. Te yeah. I mean, our, our, <laughs> our technology out into the, uh, into the 1900s was kind of, was going really slowly. And Very all of a sudden slow. we had tran tran transistors, lasers, computers, right. Satellites. We had all these things all of a sudden, thanks to what, thanks to alien technology being injected into the human timeline. Um, so, you know, I hate to say it, but but it's it's almost like we're in a zoo or some sort of some sort of a terrarium, yeah. yeah. And and these alien beings are like the scientists. Well, not even as the scientists, maybe more like farmers, more like farmers uh, manipulating their livestock. And so the question is, well, what do they have planned next? We we know that the, <laughs> we we know that 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 Cro-Magnon they disappeared from history, but I suspect that they didn't disappear. I bet they continued on in a smaller numbers, and they are like superhumans compared to us now. And for all I know, they're the ones who eventually became the 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 Tuatha or the the Nordic aliens and the Pleiadians. You know, what if they are just ancient Cro-Magnons? You know, maybe that's why they got 
they're, they're physically more robust and they got psychic powers and they got IQs of 500 or whatever it is. Um, so then the question is like, what, what is next? Are, are we the Neanderthals now? Are we going to be replaced by the next, the next phase of man? That's, that's mm-hmm. the big question, you know, and, and the alien, the, and that was my first realization. I remember, I remember, uh, I was, I was 13. I was reading abduction books at the time. And then I read Zechariah Sitchin's books and reading Zechariah Sitchin's Uh-oh. books about, about, about the replacement, about the replacement of, well, about the creation of man, you know, like taking ancient hominids and turning them into modern humans. That's when I made the connection. Wait a minute. We are now those ancient hominids compared to whatever comes next. Mm-hmm. And the alien abduction stuff nowadays is them doing the same thing that they were doing back then, just, you know, now creating the new model, which is a problem because if you look at um, alien hybrids, like the gray hybrids, gray human hybrids, the way that they're described by different abductees and contactees in the, in the literature, yes, they might be more intellectual. They might have more psychic powers, but they have less individuality. They have less um, emotional maturity. And they don't, they're not free thinking, independent spirits. You know, they're not human. They're not human in the, in the positive sense. They're almost like limited in all the things that make us good and amplified in all the things that I guess have gotten us into trouble. Like the, Mm. you know, the ego intellect, um, certain psychic things. So I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the, with the gray alien hybrid breeding program. But the thing is, but the thing is grays are not the only aliens that are out there. There are other types, like reptilians. See, I'm not sure if humans and if humans and reptilians are genetically compatible. I mean, there's sexual counters, but as far as like creating actual offspring, I'm not sure. Um, but what about like the Nordics, for example? Let's say let's say that they are Cro-Magnets or maybe humans from the future or something like that. What if they do have, or you know, or some people believe that Nordics are actually just uh, another temporary genetic creation of non-humanoid aliens, like insects mm-hmm. or some sort of hyperdimensional thing. And they just create these things as interfaces to uh, almost like, you know, like duck hunters, they got like a duck decoy. It looks mm-hmm. like a duck, but it's not. Well, what if that's what these Nordics are? They're just genetic creations. And we think, oh, wow, look, they're, they're, they're like superhumans. You know, they, they're they pleasing to the eye, some people think. Whatever, you know, it's, it's it's almost like a decoy in a way. Yeah. It's almost like trying to trying to get us familiar with the alien presence, like an interface. Um, yeah. So, so that's what's suspicious about them. But let's say that that's not true. Let's say that these Nordic aliens are some either some parallel timeline offshoot or humans from the future. Uh, and let's say that they do have greater intelligence and you know better human qualities. Well, if you take that and you interbreed it with a regular human, you're going to get something in between that is you know maybe the best of both worlds. Who knows? And the only reason I bring that up is just to say that alien human hybrid breeding stuff it's not limited to the grays it can be through other alien groups and they might have different effects and some of those effects might be more beneficial to us whereas the gray stuff might be worse who's to say um but it's not just one particular thing but whatever the case i do think that um ancient well that genetic manipulation is gonna it's, it's on the table like the agenda for it is happening right now and unfortunately it seems to me that the human gray hybrids are the dominant force in the future that we're going to have to contend with, like as far as like them replacing us or becoming the new Royal bloodline, you know, like the new elites that run humanity for the, for the benefit of their uh, alien overlords. I think, I think that seems to be what the agenda is. You know, I think they, they're creating human gray hybrids that are docile and controllable that they can put over us to manage us while being subservient to them. And that might be a template that they're using on planets all over, you know, 
this part of the galaxy to conquer worlds. So I think we're seeing an alien agenda being played out right now, but hopefully there are other alien factions that are opposed to that. And, uh, will either intervene or offer an alternative or, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like in Ukraine right now, you've got the, the NATO Western factions arming them and you got Russia arming the, the Chechenians that are going in there to fight them and so on. Like what if, what if we on earth right now are being manipulated by one side, but we're also getting help from another side. So this is where the battle takes place, but mm-hmm. you know, it all, it all originates in the alien realm up here and, and they're fighting with each other, but they're fighting through us. Mm-hmm. And so the, so, so soon, right. And so the future could be, a war of ideology, information, genetics, uh, technology, timelines, even between different alien factions that's playing out through us. And for all we know right now, you and I, people watching this stuff, we're actually participants in this war without even knowing it, just by putting info out, just by the things we're researching, <laughs> the points we bring up. These things influence people, it influences their decisions. And those decisions uh, via the butterfly effect affects the future. So things could be happening right now. We're not even aware of, right? We're just like, hey, let's just have a chat. But for all we know, like a little butterfly is like flying around right now. It's creating a little hurricane like 50 years down the line. We don't know. But aliens who are outside of time, who can see into the future, they would know these things and they would like, you know, move the different different uh, chessboard pieces. And here we are. We're, we're just the, the pieces on the chessboard. Yeah. And that's exactly why we don't talk about politics on this show, because we don't want to put that energy out into the ether for people to focus on and fixate on and develop into re- reality, you know? Uh, and, and that last question for Roman set me up beautifully because I'm going to go back to the, uh, the beginning of uh, the interview too, and ask you this question. What is the new Aquarian Messiah? The new Aquarian Ooh. Messiah. Because we've talked, we talked about the different ages, right? And how mm-hmm. there's the age of the Taurus, the age of the Aries, and each it seems like each one of those gets a new set of gods, or a new god, or a new type of uh, format for living, yeah. if you will, for that new age. And if we're coming into the new age of Aquarius, what is mm-hmm. going to be uh, the the new mm. god or the new Messiah, the new you know? Yeah. We're talking about how we're, you know, meat suits and how are we developing? What are aliens doing to us to genetically manipulate us into what? Mm-hmm. Like, is there going to be some type of new thing that's going to come that's going to, like, you know, funnel us all into this new idea? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the Aquarian ideals is community, social, social, social stuff, networking. But what is that really like? You can interpret that in the worst way possible as a hive mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And artificial intelligent hive mind. And so if you look at uh, the technological singularity, transhumanism, where AI is going, right. That, right. that's that's one branch of it. So that's the AI transhumanist branch going off in this direction. And if we take the Aquarian age in that direction, you're going to end up with what uh, Ray Kurzweil has been prophesying for a while, which is a, a God machine, you know, an, an AI that's smarter than any human brain, mm-hmm. smarter than all of humanity combined, that manages all affairs on earth and actually Westworld, uh one of the seasons i think season three kind of gets into that the idea of there being an ai that that everyone is plugged into through their devices and their little inner things that tells them what to do in life to manage to to, to sustain peace right um but that's like a that's more of a an antichrist kind of future you know it's this false false enlightenment false brotherhood of humanity uh false yeah. uh, advancement right so so that's that's one branch 
But you can have another branch right over here, which I think is a continuation of the spiritual agenda that's been going on uh, since the age of, I guess, the age of Aries in a way with um, the Bible stuff. But you look at the God of the Old Testament, right? It's like a psychopath, like a bloodthirsty, psychopathic, <laughs> tribal, mafia Vampire. boss of, of, of a thing, mm -hmm. if, you, if you want to interpret it that way. Then you shift forward to the Jesus model. And the Jesus model during the age of Pisces was like, okay, love your neighbor, brotherly love, you know, forgiveness. Um, or you can take the Gnostic angle, which is that Jesus came wow. here to kind of to kind of kind of liberate us mm -hmm. from matter and and get us to return to the kingdom of heaven, that that whole idea. Mm -hmm. And where Jesus left off is the idea of um the Holy Spirit coming in and kind of, well, they call it the advocate, but it's it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming in and taking his job in terms of helping people. So he's gone, but the Holy Spirit's here to help, to continue helping people. And that ties into the idea of the second coming and what the second coming is really. Is it, is it literally Jesus on a cloud coming down? Or is it the second coming in the more new age sense of Christ consciousness being activated in different people at once, right? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the age of Aquarius, if you take its traits of um, enlightenment, social stuff, uh, intelligence, and so on, if you take that concept and you apply it to that particular concept and take it in that direction, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a kind of, it's not going to be called this, but it's going to be, it's going to be a brother and sisterhood of Christ, which is um, the activation of Christ or higher consciousness and many people. And through that connection, they form a natural organic spiritual, uh, I don't want to say hierarchy, but uh, a network, you know, like a brotherhood, like a network of, of enlightened spiritual plugged in to the divine people that don't need uh, a physical leader to tell them what to do because they're all, you know, plugged into their heart, into their crown chakra intuition and stuff and into the divine. And so they're the part of this, this positive service to others network um, that kind of finishes what Jesus in the Bible kind of was trying to get at, you know, was trying to instill that upon the population, but the population at the time was, was too crude, right? So Jesus had to talk in parables and, and you know, got persecuted and, and all this stuff. But in the future, I don't think you're going to have that. I think you're going to have an enlightened population motivated by this, this Christ, Holy Spirit, higher consciousness energy. And there, so that's the other branch. That's this branch right here. In addition to the transhumanist AI God branch here. So that's what I'm seeing for the future. I'm seeing a technological cybernetic. It's almost like Terminator, you know, the war between man and machine, except mm -hmm. for it's, you know, taken to a higher level where now it's AI God versus the real God, which I guess makes it a, technically it makes it a, a Gnostic thing in the future, right? Because you got this false God, this, this, this demiurgic, <laughs> this demiurgic oh, blind God here. Blind God, what is a blind God? Well, it's artificial <laughs> intelligence, right? It's intelligence that's artificial. It can't actually truly see. It's just computation. Yeah. But then you've got the real God, which has true intelligence, true understanding, true wisdom. And so I think I think humanity is going to split. It's going to split in two. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they're going to split to such an extent that the timeline itself splits, where they're not even going to be in the same world, the same timeline anymore, but it's possible. And what if this keeps going and then loops back in time so now we've got positive aliens over here, yes. negative aliens over here, the gray cybernetic, yeah. you know, technology and stuff. And you got the other ones that are positive. What if it's just like a big time loop? That's possible yeah, too. Man. That's possible That's too. Really, so, you know, Westworld <laughs> does do a great job at kind of portraying a lot of that too, because they have mm -hmm. those, like the split between these two worlds and you like, you have this, the good and bad factions in both sides kind of like interweaving both throughout. And this is like an, an, an endless, like, battle but that's the hermetic hermetic qualities of it is like you know and we're, 
are we ever going to defeat the dark or is the dark just always going to be equally as there as, as it has to be and can be. And we need to just be as aware of it as possible in order to just to be like, to maintain function because it's the only thing that makes function function is like the equal part black to the equal part white. And, you know, for mm-hmm. really basic terms there, but it's crazy. I, I think, I think you nailed it right there though. There, there always has to be both. It's, and it's up to you to decide which side you're going to take, you know, are you going to go to the technocratic synthetic fake side, or are you going to go to the organic nature self-fulfillment side yeah and that choice is within us mm-hmm. between i mean think about it our intellect our egos uh the shadow you know all that stuff right there that's that's in there that actually is the the seed that drives that alternate future towards transhumanism and you know that that whole dark antichrist stuff mm-hmm. that has its holographic seed within us right now as are the darker parts of us mm-hmm. and that other pro- the other positive future that's also within us in terms of our intuition wisdom uh, intelligence and heart Right. So when you talk about making a choice, it's not just an external choice, like, oh, I'm going to align with that political faction and those agendas. No, it's an internal choice between which parts you pay attention to and kind of nurture and kindle and kind of align with and and act from. Right. So that's where it starts. Like, here's this is a fulcrum. This is a fulcrum, like right there in your chest. What do you pay attention to? What do you put your energy into? You know, what do you, what do you, what do you give light? What do you don't, what do you not give light? That's like your internal choice to, uh, you know, all of these things that are surrounding us now, you know, even just as simple things as watching TV or paying attention to media or, you know, all the other things that we talk about with like food and health and all of these things. If you put your attention into that, your energy into these things that you know that are fake, you're not doing yourself any good or the world any good because you're putting your energy into that fake shit. So switch it over and <laughs> mm-hmm. go to the other side. That That is the natural side, you know, of the organic side and the love side and the fulfillment of what your true potential is supposed to be. Beautiful. Yeah, well said. Yes, sir. Yeah, I like your, I like I, your uh, I, video. I didn't say it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was just channel channeled through you. Now, I like I like Tom. I like your videos on. Um, I like how you format your videos on your YouTube channel and uh, how you explain uh, synchronicity is really cool. Um, so I, I suggest people check that out because it kind of touches in on what we've been talking about here in this last part, like how synchronicities and like those different forms of like manifestation work. Um, and I just I like the way that you you present your videos. Um, and looks like you have a fun time doing it. Do do we have any uh any more fun videos in the works coming up? I know you just released your book Gnosis, which is available on your website. So maybe as we uh as we trot along here to the finish line, throw in any fun stuff in the future. Any anything you want to plug in, and any uh any great works coming up, uh, including music. Which I don't know if we talked about this on air yet, but Tom makes awesome doom metal uh epic doom metal which is like ballads and they're they're awesome so any fun projects coming up brother oh yeah well like right now i'm kind of i'm working on this meditation technique where you combine vowel sounds like each vowel sound is associated mm-hmm. with a certain emotion like like uh ah for example what what, what happens when you say ah like ah you feel relief uh... comfort peace security right mm-hmm. ah 
like ah, oh, you know, or um, versus like uh, E. Well, you think you think like little kids squealing E, right? Because they're happy, you know. So you think like this. So you take take a vowel sound, and you associate with an emotion, and and you and you rotate through the different vowel sounds while thinking of the different emotions and maybe different body parts. So I'm kind of experimenting with these systems. And I'm trying to figure mm. out like what is a convenient, effective way of doing multiple things at once. Like not only stimulating the different energy centers, but um, using the power of sound, um, making sure to tap a variety of different positive emotions. So something that you can do every day. And uh, I, was, I was recently researching, um, what's that one group's name? Uh, Ek, E-C-K, Ekankar, I think it's called. It's this um, spiritual community where they, they, they say the sound to help them get spiritually attuned to the Holy Spirit. And they, so they say this word, they say hue, but they say it like really slowly, almost like chanting, like hue, like that. Ooh. But I realized, well, when, you, when, you, when, you're, when you're doing that, when you say hue, you know, not only are you cycling through different vowel sounds, but you're doing this thing. They don't know it, but what you're doing is you're overtone singing. Like uh, the, a lot of these um, people in the Tibetan region, in that, that surrounding region, they do overtone singing. And that's where you you sound out a sound, but you move your lips and your mouth in a certain way that you emphasize certain harmonics above the sound. So it sounds like a whistling sound that's riding above a uh, fundamental tone. And that's what they're doing. Funny thing about that is the first time I learned about it, I demonstrated it to Carissa, my girlfriend. I demonstrated to her in the kitchen at the time. And I was like projecting my sound towards the kitchen ceiling. And I said, hey, check this out. And I was like doing it. I did it for like a couple of minutes. And then for the next hour or two, our cat was like sitting on the ground like looking at that spot where I projected my sound and just like staring at it, like watching it like television. So I was like staring at that spot myself. There was like no bugs or anything. It's almost like our, our cat was psychic. You know, she could see ghosts and things. I think I opened a portal or, you know, created a thought form or something using my sound. Yeah, so that was my first introduction to the power of overtone singing. And so overtone singing, I think is a extremely powerful thing. I think it does things on an etheric psychic level. Uh, and so you know, been working with sound lately because I love music. Nice. I love sound. I love experimenting with it. So, but I want what I want to do is I want to actually like analyze it on a spectrograph, like look at all the different frequencies, try to figure out the mathematical ratios. You know, really try to figure out like what's going on with this and how can it be used to the benefit of other people. So that's something I'm working on. And as far as like music goes, you mentioned doom metal, but I also have a uh, some more like folky, well not folky, but um, medieval sounding stuff i guess like elfish kind of happy happier sounding positive oh, things yeah. Yeah, acoustic guitars flutes more positive because i mean i like to see i like yeah. to balance i like to balance like the really dark and heavy with uh, the positive uh elfish otherworldly things too <laughs> so I, I love i love both areas right i love both yes. you know so, so all the all the bands i listen to they have those different uh, elements combined and what's um, your what's your yeah. musical project name and are you on like spotify or where can we find that yeah, just go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Tom Montauk, all one word, Tom Montauk. And if you scroll down, there's like a playlist. I've got Neptunian Horizon. That's like my main thing. That's more for, um, it's more for like ballads and uh, power metal. And um, the latest one is like, I use vocoders for like a robot voice in combination with doom metal later on to be yeah. more dramatic to, yeah. to like once again to create contrast i love contrast and balance and counterbalance and things so that's like neptunian horizon and then i've got one song under my other project called thio cryptos thio means sulfur and cryptos means hidden and so secret sulfur that's a it's an alchemical term for spirit you know it's that's why mm -hmm. it's called thio cryptos but anyway that's like my true epic doom metal song and actually it was like the number one epic doom metal song on youtube for a number of years if you type an epic doom metal it's like the number one search result but that one I'm super proud of because that's like that's like, I, it really captures you know my mood, my energy, and my mood and energy. 
it's focused on the future. It's focused on everything that's to come, this epic transition that humanity is going through, like this larger-than-life cataclysmic spiritual transformation. And so that's always on my mind. And it weighs on me pretty heavily. And so doom metal, which is like dark and heavy and like really epic, for me, that's like the soundtrack of the future. So that Thio Crypto song called Mother Shipton's, well, it's called Mother Shipton because it's a, it's called the Shipton Prophecy because it's about the Mother Shipton's prophecy about the future, this whole apocalyptic thing. Um, yeah, I wrote a song about that. So I'm proudest of that one. And then Tune Horizon is like a little bit lighter and faster. But those are those are my two two ones and you can see them on my YouTube channel. Are you using the yeah. uh, the VE the Boss VE for your vote code? I'm using uh, the, no, I'm I'm using a plugin emulator of the Sennheiser uh, 201. But it's, oh, it's, nice. it's a plugin. It's a plugin. So that's the plugin that Neil Young used on his album Trans, which which and actually Daft Punk they use that vote coder quite a bit too. Oh wow, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing about that vote coder is it has a very like clean clean sound to it. So like all the consonants instead of sounding really buzzy, they sound like you know, distinct. So I use, I use that one for, for my vocoder. And oh. the reason why I use a robot voice is because sometimes it's because it's a contrast and also it's this otherworldly kind of weird thing, you know? So I love, I love that. I, just, I love that weirdness. I love vocode, man. It is, <laughs> it taps in. Cause you, oh man, I was listening to that new song that you just released yesterday. And I was like, cause I had a VE 500 for a bit and was like playing with like using riffs and like the harmonics mm. you get on a vocoder is like awesome. And I think it takes music to another level, especially otherworldly for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love otherworldly, whether it's through the chords or through singing style or actually the melody, like I see, I'm really big on melody. And so, so my qualification for whether a song that I make is good or not is if I were to just play it, if I, if I were to just hum it or whistle mm -hmm. it, is it still good? without all the beats, without all the distortion and re reverb and all these special effects, but do like the plain melody, is it still good? Does it still get stuck in your head? And if it does, then I make it. So that's my qualification. There you go. Love it, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. We very much appreciate your time. It's great conversation. Hopefully everybody out there loves it as well. And with that, Fire Tribe, thank you for listening and wait. Uh.